Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actual Eye Podcast. In this episode, we are going to be covering, once again, John Bravakey's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We are up to episode 22 now, and that one is going to be covering Descartes versus Hobbes. This is a good episode. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so we're going to see uh, some intellectual arguing. Hmm. But explained to us by Verveke, so it's less tedious than watching two intellectuals argue with each other. I do occasionally like the debates, but now, you know, anymore, man, trying to watch debates. Like, I, you know, I remember monk debates were good. Now it's just kind of. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember then, monk debates. Yeah, man. Now They've like, had some good ones. And the level of debate at this point seems kind of just, you know, what's the. Uh, the thing the anime kids do where they pull down one of their eyelids and stick out their tongue. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's basically giving each other the finger. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. hey, that's something we should strive to bring back. Like, you know, like the, the fun and joy of having good debates and, you know, like as a, like something to watch, something to go to, something to see, not just, you know, going to music shows or lectures, but like a good debate, you know? Right. You go see a debate and then you go out for drinks and, you know, you discuss yeah. the debate, you know, it's make it, make it part of, uh, okay. Where's the live stream popping up? You there? I see us. Yay. We're seen by us. Well, what a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Said, I thought I'd already scheduled that. Let's just start it. Okay. Now we're rolling on YouTube. What's up YouTube fam. It says it's starting. It's trying to. I know. Hey, there yeah, we we're live. Okay, cool. All right, we're live we're everywhere rocking. else. Oh, I just like started it over. It was live. Okay. Okay. Facebook well. is just running really buggy and slow. Not yeah, too, yeah. Uh, not too surprising. The book of faces. Indeed. I wonder, like, is Facebook going to go the way of like MySpace and just disappear to be replaced, or is it just going to be one of those kind of like wither away type of deals where it just will always kind of be there? Mm kind of like a I wonder what do you guys think you think facebook's gonna last the test of time i mean dan's moved so quickly well, nowadays, I, I, it's hard I, to think I, that I'm facebook a, would be around 50 years from now i'm assuming it's gonna go i'm just wondering whether it's gonna like go all at once like uh facebook or excuse me myspace did or if it's just gonna be this slow whimper into you know just uh nobody uses it uh yeah maybe because yeah. it's definitely not gonna you know like you know like yeah, YouTube and Google seem really huge right now. But they how how long have we had internet like we've had it? You know, things change as they go. There will be something else that'll come up that'll replace the next thing. True that. Who knows? Maybe the AI overlords will come up with something better. <laughs> Let's hope so. I pray for this. Yeah. Well. Oh, oh boy, we're hey, hearing hear ourselves. Us. Oh no. Sounds like we got a few minute delay. We're just getting everything together. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh no. Oh well, you know. Getting it we're getting it smoother and smoother, but when you know, it's like ironing something, you know, you iron it is. Out well, basically what I need is I need somebody to run in the background. If we got any volunteers out there, if we got any friends or fam that are watching that would like to uh come and join us on these wednesday night sessions to help run uh video in the background that would be amazing yeah because right now i'm like sharing the thing around to make sure that uh 
people know that we're live and whatnot. Yeah, so we're live and alive. We're here. And today was a pretty good day. I got the chance. I had to, you know, go through all the stuff that doesn't fit me no more and all the other knickknacks and this, that, the other. And, you know, just, you know, those life purges where you're just like, okay, you know, I got to, I got to do that. I got to go through, I got to do my spring cleaning. It's about that time. Yeah. And a bunch of stuff to throw away. The arbitrary rearranging of furniture. It was only one piece of furniture because, you know. It was one piece, but it, it has been rearranged. It's now on another wall. So, yeah. Yeah. Success. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Walk in and it's different. All right. I'm just going to post the YouTube. I don't know if the Facebook's going to be able to be shared today, but that's okay. If you guys are already following on Facebook, you know where we're at on Actually Podcast. We are also live on YouTube. Yeah. So, um, I'm just going to describe martin luther um as far as like what his mental state was you know he was he was of the school of thought that is a um self-negating type of thought and you know that the, the idea of god's will and his wrath terrified him and he ended up loathing himself you know so the self-negation is no longer you know like the healthy self-negation like you know trying to keep your head from getting too big and stuff like that but like into a deep deep loathing which you know that type of loathing does cut you off from you know god and reality um Mm. it's a self it's self-destructive um and it put him in a mind state of um there's nothing he can do to save himself which sets us up for, you know, this idea of, you know, arbitrary, you know, God, you know, God's will and forgiveness is kind of an arbitrary thing because you're worthless, you know, that type of idea and you must be saved. Yeah. You know, and uh, so last week, John Verveke mentioned, um, a story of like you know the dating story so it's like you know oh you always date the same kind of guy or gal and uh you know one day you're like okay well i'm gonna try to date you know somebody completely different you know maybe you know change up my type you know stop stop dating the type of guys or type of ladies that i like but then a few months go by in your new relationship and the it just falls apart like it always has so you're just the feeling of being doomed, like I'm doomed, no matter what I do, I'm 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 doomed to fail. And that's a terrible place to be. <laughs> um, and so Martin Luther interpreted Paul's um, message on faith. Um, so it's faith becomes nothing more than complete acceptance of God's grace. So it's no longer this participatory, it's just bend over and accept it kind of, you know. Um, there's this proposition and you must accept the yeah. proposition. Yeah, you got There's no nothing choice. you can do and you can only be given given things. You can't do anything to fix your life or whatever. You just got to be given things. Yeah, we're trapped. We're trapped in, uh, trapped in mind. Yeah. Trapped yeah. by our veils of illusion. Yeah. Yeah. So, the self-loathing of Martin Luther 
made its way into his philosophical view of reality. Mm-hmm. And well, much much as what uh, Paul did, you know, he put his his shadow on the nature of God as well. Yeah, yeah, because he couldn't get past it. He couldn't figure out what comes next in in this very complex, difficult puzzle. And so that's where it stopped for humanity at that point. That's what we achieved. And and to be honest, though, this is like after the Great Plague. So massive die-offs, total, which happened after, you know, a serious sense of, uh, what, what, what do you call it, uh, domicide. Domicide. Or the sense of home. So like, you know, the world and, and societies, at least in the West at this point, were very dark um, mm. indeed. And, and rightfully so, you know, so it's, you can't just be like, oh, Martin Luther's just a terrible, awful human being that thought himself as being an awful human being and commits a bunch of other, and it's like, no, like at that period of time, it was like, yeah, he's just not projecting his inner misery on everyone else because he's a miserable human being just at default. No. It's he, he was living in a very a dark time, mm-hmm. a very dark, hopeless time for people. Yeah. So, you know, what's what's a what's a very appealing thing? You uh just tell people, well, if you accept these things and you do these things, the this positive regard of God will be bestowed upon mm-hmm. you and you don't have to do anything because you're already worth nothing. Yeah. Anyway. Like look at everything. Of course you're worth nothing. Right. So all yeah. you can do is yeah. hope that, you know, like if you know, or more than hope, you know, faith faith being this if you just accept it and just accept it enough and just accept it enough, then it'll work mm-hmm. or well I, I yeah no god will work work within you and you know yeah yeah so um relationship with god came to down to a matter of do you believe in this statement this doctrine yes. this yeah. this kind of belief and rather than a reciprocal realization that you achieve with god rather than a relationship rather than a synergetic kind of association with God and a co-creation with God. Um, now it's ar- completely arbitrary whether or not you experience God, God's grace. You know, his, his, what was it? His will supersedes his reason. So he, yeah. he won't even have a reason to give somebody grace. It's just arbitrary. It's random. So there's nothing you can do. Um, he, this is a very much a radicalized version of the mystical idea of self-negation. This got taken too far, and like mm-hmm. we were talking about last episode, Buddha took the idea of austerity so far when he met the uh, what, what were they called? Oh, the the super wise guys. The uh, wise guys that were totally yeah. They, they would only eat if a bird crapped in their mouth, and would only drink thing, yeah, if yeah. a little bit of water. If someone gave them food, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah they'd yeah. only eat or drink if it was given to them. Yeah, and. Um, they were at the very extreme of self-denial and in their self-denial they were you know and at this point the the early you know the early wise men that buddha was meeting they understood the idea that the self was an illusion Mm -hmm. and so buddha recognizes wait these guys in trying to deny the self are just admitting the idea of a self and making it stronger yeah. And this, if this is an illusion, and they're acting this. within the self, even if yeah. it is self negation, it is still interacting with the self as from self perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, faith becomes nothing but a complete acceptance, basically. Yeah. It's just acceptance, it's no longer uh, a participatory relation with God. 
Yeah, you don't have to do anything other than just accept the proposal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Luther denied the synergy of of human humanity and God working together, of, of a beautiful symmetry of our relation with the cosmos and the potential for self realization through religion. That's what religion was for. It was for self actualization and self transcendence and growing to meet God and live up to your highest potential so that you can co-create effectively. Yeah, and so the, I guess this idea would be the idea of before we were ascending Mm -hmm. towards God, and now we're in this thinking where we're opening up a space and God descends into it. So us, open up your heart and accept the light of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, you've heard that from a million and a half guys on the TV. Well, not a million and a half, but, you know, a million and a half times by the guys on the TV and the Joel Steens and the, you know, even in good churches, like Protestant sure. churches. This, this idea has just become prevalent in Christianity. Yeah. That it's no longer about the transcendent and self-actualization yeah. practices and becoming wiser yeah. and, fo- and the way, which was following the way of Christ, yeah. living as Christ lived was what was much more in the four yeah. prior to this. So now in the four, it's just, you got to accept, you got to believe, you got to say that you believe that, you know, this, 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 and this. And then you're a Christian, and yeah, it's not about so much following the way as just stating statements of belief, and that that's a very subtle switch that happens, but it has profound effects. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, it laid the grammar for cultural narcissism essentially, and that's what Verveke pointed out. Well, last, that, last that, episode. that unearned positive regard, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like you don't, you didn't earn God's grace. You didn't ascend to anything. You didn't work on yourself. You didn't go out and do good deeds in the world for the sake of doing good deeds to show the love that was shown to you that made right. you a person that makes other people persons. Yeah. Um, and That's so, true. yeah, through his protesting of the Catholic church, which Catholic church is still the, the participatory mindset. And now mind you, mm-hmm. the Catholic church was effing up. You know, they had the secret police coming out and gathering people up. So there's a reason. They were going for after this. heretics at this point. You know, and it, that's a little bit he wasn't authoritarian, just a little angsty, bit tyrannical. He, he wasn't yeah. just an angsty college kid with a sign. You know, he like he was. No, actually, he had reason to be upset with the yeah. church. And, and uh, there's also the rising middle class at this time. So they're, they're challenging the new aristocracy. Mm-hmm. These people are moving up. And now this new aristocracy is challenging mm-hmm. the ruling power of the church. Yeah. And, because, and it's being unreasonable at this point, so they have reason to do so. So that the deep irony of what's happening here is that Martin Luther, he's trying to rescue us from our self-obsession because he notices a rising amount of self-obsession, basically, of, of ego happening. And in, in, But in trying to resist it, you know, that old adage, what we resist persists. It and, makes it stronger. So the deep irony here is that in his attempt... Uh, he ended up painting us as inherently worthless, and the only solution, like you said, is this unearned positive regard that inevitably leads to mass narcissism. Narcissism, and a few hundred years later, now five hundred or so, we see where we're at. You know, the Twitter, the Snapchat. Yeah. The, the, now they got filters, so even if you ain't that good looking, you can you can be a perfect ten. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you know, um, unearned positive regard. So yeah, his his pro. His problems with the Catholic Church were really the 
authority of tradition over you know one's self opposed to as we come to is well no you you are the ultimate decider of your life and everything whereas you know the church at the at the time and still to a certain extent now is um conformity still conformity based opposed to individual based so you're conforming within the church to the dogma being a part a part of the church being a part of you know god in this way through the church um whereas at this point now martin luther is introducing us to the knowing oneself and valorizing the self being the final authority and this whole idea of be true to yourself is putting yourself above reality so above the congregation above the fellowship above your community well even even above your like i I would go as far as yes precisely i would go as far to say that because you know substitute you know reality and god for each other in this argument so you're putting yourself above that psychologically that's what this did for us because now we start feeling safe challenging the idea of god yeah um and you know furthering the the secularization of society society. so you know the government is like now being very separated from the church so we don't want the church involved in Mm -hmm. all this the Mm -hmm. state we were a few episodes ago introduced to you know the state being the arbitrator to guarantee contact uh, contracts are fulfilled Mm -hmm. so if you Mm -hmm. do a contract with somebody else um yep and then the church was the wisdom authority and then the knowledgeable authority would be the university and then the power to arbitrate was you know the state Mm -hmm. well we moved past that and got rid of all the monasteries and wisdoms and then made the university the knowledge the pinnacle the state became so powerful that it basically separated the connection that the university and the church had and they used to be for a short time they were educating together they built up this universal knowledge and they're like okay here's your universal education plus how to live in the universe which is religion yeah you know, what are things made of and then how to live? Well, and at the time, who had the money to be able to build, have build anymore. those institutions? Yeah. Where do you go for you, wisdom now? Where do you go to learn how to live, like how yeah. to be in this world? You know, uh, uh, YouTube and Rumble and all that other yeah, stuff. You go to and, like a psychiatrist and, and yeah, and you go yeah. to YouTube and Rumble and, and you find like people that. like John Verveke and other stuff. But, you know, it's kind of like you're forced into being an autodidact at this point because mm-hmm. there's real no solid place that you can go. There are. No physical places. Yeah, yeah. Th- there are like digital communities, yeah. but we don't have but, like a stoa know. that we go to. Yeah. There is the stoa on YouTube though, which is a great channel you guys should check out. It's just like the ancient Greek, um, what was that area that they would meet in, like an agora, like mm. uh, yeah. uh, the stoa area where the philosophers would go and talk. Yeah. So yeah, Luther protests the the Roman Church. Um, he attacks the authority of the church and its tradition. And he valorizes personal conscience, as you were saying. Individual conscience is, pr- is the prime determinator of morality now. Yeah. yeah. Being true to reality is superseded by being true to yourself. So the church had a knowledge institution, universities. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's the legacy of the actual yeah. revolution was that pairing of the wisdom practice of self-transcendence in a monastery and the knowledge of the universe and universities. And I would say Martin Luther went even, you know, went to a point where the idea of self-transcendence was the grand illusion. Oh, yes. you think you, he said it was the greatest lie. And, you know, this kind of actually, you know, goes back to the 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 Gnostic demi demiurge idea of 
reality in the universe that we're like stuck in a prison and we've mm. got a cruel prison guard for a god uh, you think you can you can transcend through that but instead of being like well we must get over the walls of this prison and become more it was in this case well why even try the walls are too high you're you know you're just yeah. in here and reality hurt. isn't out if you're lucky they'll let yeah. you the, he'll the, let you out in the sunshine and there's no meaning in anything out yeah. there it's only found in your mind and yeah. in your interpretation of what's happening so now that the university becomes attached to the state we basically killed off our wisdom traditions we we've destroyed the idea of utilizing religious practice spiritual practice for self-transcendence and personal growth of wisdom and compassion and love and those kinds of things so uh yeah knowledge not being linked to wisdom anymore but to, but the politics has all kinds of outcomes yeah. we have uh, bacon at the at this time telling us uh, that knowledge is power and this is like really the start of statism as in the state mm -hmm. controls everything other than those who are saved but how do you know who's saved you don't anymore yeah you've yeah. lost the institutions so, that help that taught self-transcendence so you so how do you spir tell spirituality and faith is now something that you do at home by yourself and you know or at church and it, it's no it's longer a integrated portion of society now mind part you, of it, life. it, it, it yeah. still is there are still people going to church but it's not well funny it doesn't about, interact yeah at, in the same way anymore it's something that you go to and you do and you know you go to church and you do the things on the sunday and you do this it's not this is how i live my life to transcend my lesser self at this point mm -hmm. you know and then the church is the wisdom mechanism that helps you understand mm -hmm. that yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. now it's just it well it's becoming at this point with martin luther separating further, and further, you know, separate. further away and yeah. further away and getting pushed further away and also at the same time your church is becoming more centered and um cut off from the rest of the community yeah. even yeah more we and care more, more about more. being and this is going to be a somewhat offensive statement for people to hear but we care more about being entertained now than taking part in our communities don't yeah. we oh yeah well even the you know the, doesn't it feel that way the virtue signaling when people go out with their signs like you know and like you know, something will happen and they don't want something built somewhere or, mm. you know, they they go out there and they're like, yeah, we do this thing. And everybody's, you know, they're exhilarated. They're having fun doing it and they're alive and they're like feeling this thing. But it's an entertainment opposed to, you know, like uh, going out there and, you know, the true activists cleans. are the ones that are out there every single day. They're the ones making all the signs. They're the ones that are actually well, not having as much fun as the ones that are just kind of showing well, up once in a while. And also the people that are, you know, like conscious about and how do they conduct spend, themselves? spending yeah. habits and wasting habits and yeah and are they hateful and blameful in their yeah. activism well, or the, are they the greatest activist is to build within your own community and make your community as good as possible and as economically competitive sure. as they possibly can be yeah and there's nothing wrong with activism in general i mean no. it's, it's very much the grassroots of of what links together and knits together our our democratic republic that yeah, we have today but is it's it useful for, it's important is it but for, for entertainment or sometimes it, people are just signaling their virtue and doing it for fun and fitting in rather than actually intended to do anything virtuous or you know like, or they, they want to be seen as doing something virtuous they might even care about something but they're not willing to challenge themselves to make sure it's necessarily 100 percent true you know there's there's a lot that goes into this yeah and, and, and it's, it's this is a very complex topic that's hard to talk about in a way that's not going to be offensive. So sorry, guys. I, I spent many years of my life involved in activism, uh, particularly anti-war activism. 
and some environmental. And I can tell you that a lot of it does, a lot of it's incredibly important, but a lot of it also does amount to just trying to signal that you're a part of this thing and you, cause you want other people to join because you think it's good. Well, and a lot of times too, there's, there's money to be made by the people who are doing it right. And that drives a lot of things where it's activism mm-hmm. for the sake of, well, my job is being an activist. Yeah. It's like, well, we, I t- we talked on this before you know, too. Like when, when self-righteousness becomes involved then, and, and hate and blame of yeah. the other, well, that's when becomes involved. Then it's no longer really activism to me. And then your infighting starts, and then the the group that started out being like like pretty good. You know, I saw a little bit of that happen in my own community where there was a cause, and then there was infighting, and then it fell apart in the worst ways. You know, finger pointing mm-hmm. at the person in the center of the circle and public shaming and all that stuff. And you know, there was reasons on both sides, but it it just it eats itself because it's not true. Like what really works is like, look at the people who have successful businesses in your community. They're not screwing over the members of your community. They're actually providing quite a useful service that makes the air, makes the community better. Sure. Um, that's, you know, like why we participate in it. Mm-hmm. Like a good, a good public space. Like but that's, a, you make a, a good important point. Our hearts got to be in the right place mm-hmm. when we are involved in something. If there is a situation where you actually have to go, and show large numbers of people yeah. uh, stand against something that is getting pushed down people's throats because of maybe some powerful monetary business interest has got people in, in their pockets in government. Our but, hearts must be in the true place. we got to be coming from our compassion, our wisdom, our understanding, and, and our willingness to meet people where they're at and not be hateful and blameful towards them. And we should probably leave our... Otherwise, we're just causing division. You're not causing productive activism by any means yeah. there. You're causing rifts. And so, you know, what, where where are our hearts at uh, as we're doing these things? And are we trying to understand the other side's points of view as well? Are we really trying to figure out what the compromise is or are we just angry and trying to make our point heard? Well, that's the emotion. Without anything to do afterwards. That's the emotionality that we really have to yeah. watch out for because um, when trying to make decisions on what's right and what's not and how to get your point across and your grievances, you do have to hold your emotions in check because if you don't, you can be swept up yeah. into, you know, horrible riptides of whatever you know like getting swept up into the riot and i don't mean like you find yourself in when you're like oh no i can't get out but being like yeah i should throw this stone or yeah you know i should cheer when somebody catches something on fire excusing violence towards certain groups of people well that comes from the emotion of well you know like yeah like you know if you're doing stuff that's like actually like borderline bigotry like saying a cab you know for those of you that don't know what that means, that's all cops are bastards. Is that true? Why would we stereotype, throw a blanket term on an entire group of people? Yeah. That way? Well, it's it's the yet again being it's really emotional, cool. and that's how very the, dark. That's it's a dangerous idea to put out there. That's how the sophists get us. They get us with our emotions, and then they give us a really catchy thing to say. Yeah, it might know, not some, even be intellectually sound, but yeah. it's really emotionally. Well, grabbing, sure. yeah, so. that, yeah. If it's emotional, you don't have to worry about it being ele- intellectually sound. It's emotional. It's hard to talk ab- against something when it's phrased certain ways. Sometimes too. You ever watch you a, a, like really watch a soap opera and get into it? 
it's a totally different experience than just watching it and like you know everybody's so emotional and you're like this acting is bad the story doesn't make any freaking sense but the people who really get into it well they're emotional all these little bits don't have huh. to make sense <laughs> right it, it yeah. pulls you through it's something uh, that grips you and pulls you yeah. through and you know like um the dark side of activism is very much like that mm -hmm. and i'll say the dark side because for you know every psychotechnology and expressions of these psychotechnologies we do there is a bright side and a dark side sometimes the dark side is way bigger than the bright side so some of these things are best avoided you know well the last hundred years uh, kind of you know there's kind of told us about that you know yeah were some of these dictators really efficient and they could build things up real quick yeah but you know like how many people are buried under the building <laughs> do 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 <laughs> but yeah so this you know here's a quote that i would that you just reminded me of there is a principle which is a bar against all information which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance and that principle is contempt yeah. prior to investigation if you are looking down on an idea or a person before you actually educate yourself on the subject, you have the perfect argument in your head. And you're, you have this proof against all the arguments. You have a bar against any further information, too. So these people are very difficult to debate with. You might as well not even try to debate them so much as try and converse with them and dialogue with them and get, yeah, you I, know. And, I, ha I have this. I have this issue with talking. We, we got to change the whole dynamic of the game because the, they're very much set up in an oppositional framework. Yeah. Line. So, like a, a good example for me personally, and I've been, I've been open about this. I'm an unabashed capitalist and an anarchist. Um, so I do like having discussions about, say, like socialism versus capitalism versus corporatism. Sure. And yeah. you know, fascism, national socialism, and all the different ways. But when you try to, you know, like when I talk with my friends who are either socialists or more like, well, no, like everybody's talking about socialism and that end of things. And, you know, like and being like, well, no, socialism is not a viable economic theory or governance theory because of this, this and this and this mm -hmm. and this. But look what capitalism has done. It has like say like, you know, taken instead of 98 percent of the world being in abject poverty, most of the world, I don't know what the statistic is, but it's like a lot of the well most of the world is living way better than all the rest of the humanity mm -hmm. combined you know like yeah. we just because it are. allows for fair trade anybody well, can we, be got, upward, we got we got electricity we got relatively yeah. affordable transportation we've got you know like the ability to send massive amounts of food and supplies to places that don't have it mm -hmm. you know we have that ability and that's you know yeah like, if you really like, really 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 truly don't like capitalism okay go throw but, away all so, your phones and so everything what becomes that hard is i don't even get to start to mention these things it was like and you know, oh, know. and they're yeah. just like well now like well, you know, socialism capitalism and elon musk sounds so like, good on paper that why would you study anything after that you you see you hear this idea you're not very well educated on different yeah. styles of governance that humans have managed to come up with for themselves if you don't realize that this is the best thing we've come up with yet and it's imperfect and there's a lot of corruption unfortunately in our government today that sure. our forefathers tried to put safeguards against but inevitably they knew this was going to happen. And corruption's corruption. So they it's put really in very many safeguards and made it very hard for it to be completely taken over but it's still quite corrupt. We, we, our government has a ton of problems. 
democracy by itself has a lot of but, problems. Republicanism yeah. by itself has problems. Well, but you put them together with a fair trade system, a, an actual trade system that's free and accessible to all, and you have something that's lifted billions of people around the world out of poverty. And, I, and I'm with you, um, you know, in, in that I appreciate anarchism. And I also see that we as humans are not mature enough to have yeah. a complete to to be managing yeah. our lives ourselves yeah. without governing bodies helping us. Well, and it's just also like we're not there yet. It, yeah, but we're steps towards that. But I guess like my my, but yeah, socialism. The, 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 the central well, authoritative the, body is the part that well, bothers beyond me. Beyond which one's better or not? Like when yeah. I have these discussions, I find it hard because there's the capitalists I talk to. They don't have contempt for socialism. They look at it as a system that doesn't work and is dangerous as far as like it can go the wrong way so this is these are the things whereas you yeah. have the people who are really for socialism and i get it like yeah really you only have to work like four days a week and you'll have a super comfortable life and everybody will have that and cool it's like well people are gonna go crazy yeah like people have yeah. to have some type of purpose yeah but you know the, the people i have these discussions sometimes mm -hmm. arguments sometimes just yelling back and forth with it's just no uh, capitalism all the capitalists you know i bring up like you know some points that thomas soul had mm -hmm. they'd be like ah oh, him and i'm like okay no he's the guy that's i oh i wrote the book on thomas soul was democrat, or i right? you know huh he's democrat too as far as i remember um i'm not sure about his he's, yeah. he's like a conservative democrat but i'm pretty yeah. sure he actually is a democrat yeah probably black guy um he, he was a marxist when he was a teenager and then they're like what he happened he's it like very well he's very well educated yeah. uh well yeah, yeah and he you know yeah. he but, you know, so this is somebody that's like, even if you're not a capitalist, you can still be like, well, yeah, he actually does have points. And he says it very matter of factly mm -hmm. and doesn't really put any emotion into it other than just bemusement. And, dude, you're making <laughs> such a good point right now, too, that I really want to highlight for everyone listening. You said whether or not it doesn't matter which one is right. Yeah. Whether, whether or not one is better than the other. Yeah. We can't talk about it. Yeah, it, and yeah, we got to. I like precisely. that you said that. That's so important. It doesn't matter which. Okay, let's put aside which one is better. Then let's put aside which version of government is the best one that for for us to be going for. And let's just talk about them all and figure it out together instead of being so egotistical over everything yeah. and, and then, acting like these ideas are our own. Like we made them up and defending them like they're our children or something that are getting attacked. Actually, like, it's this... not that. Where these ideas can compete and communicate with one another and they can inform one another and they can upgrade one another yeah and, and they can con congeal into new ideas so that's that's what we're going for here is trying to birth and that actually brings you know, us right a capitalism 2.0 you could say that's more fair or even a democratic republicanism you know? 2.0 that foster that steps back and yeah. then just acts as the arbiter of contracts and then handles certain things like defense of the homeland, disaster relief, maintenance of sure. parklands and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, Social needs will be met like parks and firemen and police well, departments and, and, also and the, an army. The cleaning and, up the law and making sure, like looking at things and making sure it's still relevant and, and you know, like the baseline we really need of what to they should be. simplify law, man. It's way too complicated and on purpose too. Yeah. There's a lot of work that we need to yeah. do. We need to get things on the blockchain so it's hard, harder to hide corruption. Yeah. But yeah, so and this isn't just you know like capitalists arguing with Marxists either. Like in within the Protestant wing, there has been a fracturing, like so many so many times, and it's this argument of who's right or not, and everybody has contempt for the Baptists, and you know. <laughs> The Baptists might not like the Pentecostals, and the Pentecostals yeah. don't like the Lutherans, yeah. and the, the Lutherans don't like 
everybody else (laughs) so it's like because it's well my way is right our way is right we you know we have we are the ones who truly have god's yeah the understanding of god's blessing upon us and we can truly have our hearts open to the The, the protestant movement the protesters against the catholics the protestants um inspired by martin luther uh definitely set in process the repeated bifurcation fragmentation mm-hmm. of church into and in, of a religious sex into just dozens and hundreds and thousands mm-hmm. of uh, various belief systems now but something good to come out of the protestant reformation um was the protestant work ethic i think that's a good one sure. to say. Absolutely. look you have to work hard yeah. if yeah. you don't work hard frankly you're not gonna eat i guess in martin luther's mind and his followers it would be you have to work hard and show that you're humble in order to gain God's grace because you still are worth nothing. So you have to work even harder. To, you know. That doesn't even gain you God's grace. That just yeah. might be a sign that you have God's grace, grace. So yeah. it might as well work I, yeah. hard yeah. Um, because then at least it feels like you're getting God's grace that way. Uh, the word was <laughs> arbitrary uniqueness, like, you know, the fracturing within the church mm. as well as, you know, like the different political systems and, ideologies and how arbitrary all, uniqueness so yeah. just unique just for oh, the we're point just of different it. yeah not we'll, because it works better we'll just to, work to be to different. the end of our name and now we'll that has become a part and, of our yeah. cultural grammar as sure. well we act this yeah. way well yeah and we used to laugh at it when it was like teenagers like dressing as goth or like putting you're a, like, right a crazy color streak through their hair yeah because being true to reality has now been superseded by being true to yourself yeah, what is yeah, the self <laughs> That's the that's the funny part is that when you really like look and see what is the self, well, you have a bunch of ideas that you can name off a list of traits, and you got a story and everything, and you can so you can say all these things. But okay, so like I'm into this kind of music. Who is the I that is into it? Well, what in, traits does it have? And you'll find out that this that the thing that you feel like, the thing that you call me or I, the sense of being alive, it doesn't have any traits. Awareness has no descript describing factors that whatsoever that way it's just aware the way that the uh the self was described in, in previous episodes and the one that i like is like you know this sticky ball that sticks all the relationships and events and things to it and that is the self that gathers the things so when somebody is telling you their story that's how we gather the idea of a self but well, who is it that has but the you're self? not you're not actually explaining the sticky ball you're just explaining all the things that are stuck to the sticky ball you, <laughs> you know you're, well you're, you know you're, yeah what is the thing it's that like i'm an american man to? with curly hair who plays it's like an invisible and, you know. it's an invisible orb it has no matter yeah. it's just awareness that all of these ideas stick to yeah so i like this i like that well, and even beyond um even but, beyond ideas it's relationships between people as well like you know your day-to-day relationships or the ones we give titles to like parent yeah, or yeah. child, or you know, like other things. Yes, like, all of know. this, our, our conditioning, all of this builds up our idea of ourself. So we have a personage, a cast image that we put out to the world that we believe that's who we are. And we've talked about this before, but this is such a tricky thing to get at to where it is like deeply comprehended. You can have an idea of yourself. Who has the idea? It's a conglomeration of thoughts, perceptions, yeah. conditioning. And well, it's influences, but who is it that has it? And you'll notice if you look that it doesn't have any traits. Like I can say, I'm angry right now. I don't want to talk. Who's who is it? But 
but but then if I search within myself, I notice, wait, I am angry. I have anger arising inside me. Who is the me then that the anger is arising inside? I can say I have a personality that's very patient. Who is the me that has the patient personality? Who is that? So, and why is it that our awareness has no describing factors? It can have a bunch of stuff that can stick onto it. And then here's the wonder of what we discovered through meditation. You can sit in that primary sense of awareness prior to all thoughts and descriptions and ideas that are put on top of it. Prior to all, that, all those filters that we see and experience through, there's just the experience of being here in this moment. And if you just be in that, it's incredibly peaceful. It's freeing. And this is a doorway to self-transcendence for us. But the one thing, so there seems to be an inversion that happened during this period of time, whereas reality, you could imagine it like this, reality is on top, and the experiences of reality are sifting down onto the self, which gathers them and becomes more and moving up. When you put the self, so this thing that we can't talk about, but the self above reality now it's mm -hmm. the self that i am this and this and this and this and this and this that is going to its force and influence is going to be moving down onto reality yeah yeah you're going to perceive reality gaining, through all of these ideas you're not going to be experiencing reality directly well okay um, as much either so i guess what i'm getting at is like before it was like you know this this it was the the idea that the true reality is like you could say it's above you mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's coming down into you but now we have an inversion where reality is this thing that is now under your will because now mm -hmm. it's all a battle of wills after all, like in this point that we have gotten to, um, it, it's this, it's now the self, the willful self is above reality. And I can, I am the ultimate decider of what happens in my life. The control is mine, not, mm -hmm. not within the tradition, not with no, the authority and control is mine. So I control reality. Instead of a, being like yeah. a, a holistic relationship yeah. where we are one with the universe and we are co-creating with it, now we have separated ourselves. And we are interacting with this inert thing, trying to push it and make <laughs> reality it Reality went from yeah, up there. Meaning. And yeah. we gazed at it. The meaning used to be everywhere. And would grow Not up just up there. It. it was everywhere. Well, yeah, it was for, everywhere. for this brief, you know, this... this um, yeah, an I, no, analogy. No, no, yeah, it mixes God, you, with the the analogy of God's grace well, coming no, down on us. Though God used to be, or uh, reality used to be, this thing that we look up to and aspire to and grow to. Or now yes. it's the ground that we trample on and contempt. There you go. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, like dig it out into easier walking ways for ourselves. Yeah, and you can't reach and, up into it, and you can't interact no, and become a better person to climb to those heights and ascend. No, because now there's anymore. there's nothing up there. Don't look up. No, don't look up. No, yeah, just, right. Yeah, don't look, look up. at your feet and stomp on it. And I, I noticed that people don't look up anymore. People don't actually sit and wonder and enjoy the beauty of the sky on, you know, it's on a regular basis, at least. It's got to shock you. It's got to be a beautiful sunset. And you're like, oh, my God, the sunset's beautiful. But that's just a natural thing that you can do anytime. Uh, the sky is always amazing. Pay attention to the sky. I always yeah. know what the weather the world is going to be with, within the next six to eight hours yeah. around where I'm in. We have dynamic weather, so it's hard to tell. But you can, like, the the wind always blows upstream one way like it's blowing the other way you know if you're seeing clouds coming from a certain area moving in a certain line with a certain texture you're like oh yep check the weather radar well, um, we've been talking we've been talking yeah. for 43 minutes already we should jump in yeah so we're worldless orphans less uh left to bear it uh bear <laughs> it all without the resources to do so yeah so existential dread the mm -hmm. cosmos is no longer 
cosmetically beautiful, it is now terrifying. Yes, and the scientific revolution and the Protestant revolution are conjoined and intertwined. Luther now advocates that there's no mediator between you and God, which is an interesting idea. Everybody else now has now equal spiritual authority um, because the processes of self-transcendence no longer matter. So you don't have to look for wise sages anymore, mm-hmm. for instance, who are authorities of knowledge. Yeah. And that's actually the kind of authority you should want to look for is people who have mastered something who are authorities of knowledge. They're not trying to exercise unjust authority yeah. over you. They just have an authority of knowledge. Yeah. There's someone that you will look up to and you can learn from that you could follow. They that have a give lot you good of direction. merit. Yeah, they have merit. Yes, yeah. they've earned. So I guess we're introduced their, to their way to into, yeah. Descartes, um, who wants to use math to come up with a new solution to this, you know, their meaning crisis, this existential dread, the universe being scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so he created a new psychotechnology, which was the Cartesian graphing system, which yep. is your standard grid. Everybody knows it. But just graphing in general, being able to represent information and plot it in many different ways to look at it in many different ways and compare it, yeah, um, which made gods of men. Now we can understand the cosmos, the universe, like with simple equations, like Vervegi said, E equals MC squared. Understanding that, you understand there's enough energy in a paperclip to blow up an entire city. You just have to know how to harness it. Yeah. Descartes was a super genius. Um, Yeah. Invented graphing, the socialized, standardized info information processing technique of algebra just upgraded radically Mm -hmm. once we started thinking graphically. Yeah. And so uh, Descartes... Invents analytic geometry. So his idea of 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 his meaning crisis was a lack of the search for certainty, and math is yep. what gives certainty. So now yep. through these, we, ha- you know, our minds are machines yes. that use equations to gar- gather certainty. Now, yeah. So D- Descartes he recognizes a search for certainty in Luther, and he's trying to find a way to solve this. Um, you know. So he's he he comes up with this idea that purely propositional knowledge is the way to go. Then this is becomes much more powerful than perspective on participatory knowledge that we previously uh, used more widely. Yeah, to transform our minds into machines for certainty. Yeah. Yes. So the way to address the anxiety of our age is to try and become as computers. Yeah. Reasoning's being reduced to computation yeah. to achieve certainty. And this is our the method by which we're attempting to leave anxiety. Yeah, and so now we have a seesawing between this idea of radical acceptance and the idea of radical certainty, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. you, you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't be at polar opposites than certainty and acceptance because you accept things that you're not certain of. You're when you're certain of something, you don't have to accept anything else because you're yeah. Certain. Certainty is so dangerous when you're that extreme with it. Yeah. So on one hand, we have the self doubt and the narcissism of Luther, um, the miserableness of it, yeah. and then on the other hand, you have this certainty. Both are quite pathological. Yeah. When yeah. when taken to their extremes, yeah. for sure. Um, now I can understand what Descartes was trying to do with oh sure using yeah. math is like well let's take out let's get how do we get rid of the scary well to understand it. Mm-hmm. If if you understand something, you're less fearful of it, and that's true. Like if you want to get a kid to be stop being afraid of bugs or uh, I don't know dark spaces or whatever, you teach them about them, you yeah. show it to them, and you have slowly to expose it. them to yeah. it. Yeah. And so then, oh, I know what this is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so basically where we left off last episode was with Hobbes coming in, challenging Descartes, saying that cognition is computation. Computation, yes. And then Descartes comes back, and that's where their kind of feud comes on. And matter and matter is is, subs, is substance opposed to potential, and we measure that substance through resistance. So that is real. Yeah. So what if we bought a machine that did – what if we, you know, built a machine that did computation? You know, that's the first concept of an AI. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. Hobbes, and it would have a mind is yeah. what he, he thinks. Without the soul. Yeah. It, it, th- and that's, that's basically what Hobbes is saying. It's like cognition is computation. Then if we could build a ma- machine that does computation, then it would have a mind um, if, if it can do enough computation. So he is prognosticating the idea of artificial intelligence way before we are actually starting to impl- implement it. And in doing so, he he kills off the idea of the soul pretty effectively, for for the people mm-hmm. on Moss. You know, if I can build a mind, then there's no soul. So that's it. Yeah. Well, we haven't built that mind yet, and we're still no, yeah. trying to figure out what that soul thing is, and not even talking about the spirit yet. <laughs> no, and yeah. and as these episodes are starting to ramp up now and get more intense, just wait because this one hits you again. This is a good episode. Um, but we've dealt with a lot of the heavy stuff now, so there's no major haymakers for us psychologically here. Yeah. We're, we're rolling with the understanding that we've achieved thus far now, and we're going to see where it goes. So this is episode 22 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis by John Verveke. Highly recommend that if you guys are enjoying this series at all, if you think that any of this stuff is remotely interesting, check out John Verveke's channel. Watch the series for yourself. Make sure you like and subscribe to him, and if you enjoy our work here, like and subscribe here as well. And real quick, before we jump in, let uh, me go please. ahead and let you guys know we got some shows coming up for American Dharma bada bing, bada boom. on uh, October. I'm sorry, October. Where's, where's October come from? March 31st. <laughs> I don't even know where I got the O or the Daylight awesome. Savings Time, man. I think I was thinking of a show in April, but somehow October came up. So uh, Friday, March 31st, we are going to be at granny's in winchester virginia headlining this show is screaming mad d calhoun and cannon hill will be playing as well and ourselves that's march 31st ten dollar cover doors at seven music at eight granny's in winchester virginia and then uh after that on the 22nd saturday april 22nd see i feel like i'm missing something here is that march 31st still I gotta double check this because I felt like that one might have changed to April seventh. Anyways, look us look on our Facebook page and you'll find out. Definitely on uh, four twenty two, April twenty second, we're gonna be playing with two freaks at Blue Fox in Winchester, and then two freaks cursor our cursor and ourselves are going to be playing. And then uh, after that, I know we've got June 9th and tenth. We're gonna be playing Sonar Fest. We got tickets for that. That's a two-day festival. It's going to be a big event, and some amazing bands are going to be playing. And so where's that? That is going to be Baltimore? up in Maryland, and we'll yeah. give you guys all the details of that. i got to share the links and everything for you guys to be able to uh, get the tickets for that. But, yeah, we got that coming up. And, oh, that's right. I remember what it was that I'm missing. On the 7th, we are also playing with Cannon Hill and... 7th of April. 7th of April at Zen West with uh, Cannon Hill, After Hours, and Benny O.K. 
I think that'll be our second show we paid with Benny OK last time we were mm-hmm. at, uh, mm-hmm. at the... Oh, and this is a headlining show for us. So if you guys want to come see us headlining oh, really? at Zen West in Baltimore, Maryland, then you should definitely get tickets to this show. So ticketed shows, April 7th, Baltimore. And then we also got um, coming up in Hawthorpe or something. I, f- I forget where the Sonar Fest is in Maryland. We're going to be playing that one on uh, June 9th and 10th. 9th or 10th. I don't know which day we are yet. Yeah, fam. Thank you for uh, dealing with me and going through all of that. And make sure you like and subscribe to the band. If you happen to like rock music, you should definitely check us out. Yeah. All right, y'all. We're going to jump into it now. Let me get the software up and running. Here we go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we took a look at uh, Martin Luther and the deep impact in our cultural grammar uh, made by the Protestant Reformation. And we talked about things like um, cultural training for narcissism, uh, sapiential obsolescence, the division of church and state, which furthers uh, secularism, and uh, the rise of the Protestant work ethic and how how that integrated with uh, emergent corporate capitalism. Uh, that we then took a look at <coughs> uh, some initial responses by uh, this change and the loss of the cosmos and being replaced by the infinite spaces that terrify. We looked at an individual who tried to respond to that, a brilliant genius from the heart of the scientific revolution, and that's Rene Descartes. He creates a new psychotechnology, the psychotechnology that is at the core of the scientific enterprises understood today, and that's Cartesian graphing. And the whole proposal is that um, we can render everything into equations, and that if we mathematically manipulate those abstract symbolic propositions, we can compute reality. And that Descartes saw in that a method for how we could achieve certainty, and that he understood the anxiety of his time as being provoked by a lack of certainty and the search for it, and this method of making the mind computational in nature would alleviate the anxiety that was prevalent at the time. And so I noted that we had, we had two different elements in our grammar that are in significant tension with each other. From, and, they, and they both... They share, that's, that's what's so interesting about them, right? They, they, they share, they overlap significantly in the idea of the isolated individual mind. Whereas Luther's going to put an emphasis on conscience, or Descartes's going to put an emphasis, as we'll see, we began to see last time, on what we'll now call consciousness, although, of course, these two words are highly related in nature. But on one side, we have the the grammar from uh, Luther telling us that we need to accept without question, without evidence, without argumentation. And then Descartes is we should only accept uh, when we have certainty. And uh, neither one of those is viable for us. They're both pathological in a very uh, deep way. But we saw that Descartes nevertheless... Uh, proposes this new method, a method, again, 
it's similar in so many ways to uh, essential features of the Protestant Reformation, a method cut off from tradition, a method cut off from institution, a method that relies just on the individual mind in relationship uh, to itself. So although in one way, in one sense, these two grammars, the Lutheran grammar and the Cartesian grammar, seem so opposed in our culture, and these grammars are at war in our current culture war, uh, the war between an, idea, uh, an understanding of faith as a radical acceptance and knowledge as the pursuit of logically derived certainty, although they are that, that grammatical tension is at the core of a lot of our culture wars. Nevertheless, these two views are so deeply bound together because of their mutual influence and their shared commitment uh, to the isolated individual self. Descartes has uh, a, a couple of contemporaries. As I mentioned, Pascal. We'll come back to Pascal in a bit. Uh, but we also talked about Hobbes, right? And Hobbes comes up with the radical proposal that, following on Descartes, if cognition is computation and if matter is real, then we can build a material computer and we could artificially make cognition. Artificial intelligence is a product of the scientific revolution and is part and parcel of right, the advent of the meaning crisis in modernity. Now, what I want to do is take some time to look at these two interactions that I've mentioned, draw them out a bit. We have Descartes versus Hobbes, and then we have Descartes and Pascal. Uh, what we can learn from these interactions, because they're pivotal. And we are now going to uh, remind ourselves that the idea of artificial intelligence is deeply relevant to both the scientific revolution and the meaning crisis. I've shown you how it's relevant to the scientific revolution, and I pointed out last time that it is deeply relevant to the meaning crisis because Hobbes, with the proposal of artificial intelligence, proposes to finish the swath of death that has been uh, created by Galileo killing the universe, for example, and what Hobbes is doing is killing the human soul. And of course, that's going to exacerbate the cultural narcissism because if we no longer have souls, then finding our uniqueness and our true self, the self that we're going to be true to, becomes extremely paradoxical and problematic. If you don't have a soul, what is it to be true to your true self? And what is it that makes you utterly unique and special from the rest of the purposeless, meaningless cosmos? So, these are going to be crucial questions. Now, I want to take a look at how Descartes responds to Hobbes, because that's going to make clear to us, again, both the scientific import and the existential relevance of the AI project. And it'll also make clear uh, deeper problems that we are now facing in the meaning crisis. All right. Now here's where it's important to make, make clear how we should treat Descartes. So it's very fashionable philosophically and cognitive scientifically to uh, blame Descartes for 
uh, many, many mistakes. Um, there's a famous book by Damasio, a, a book that in other respects I think very highly of, Descartes' Error, right? And we'll talk about all this stuff later. However, <laughs> I mean, if I were to put it in a sentence, I wish I had made Descartes' mistakes. Descartes is titanically brilliant, and the mistakes he makes are so foundational to our culture, so woven into our cultural grammar, that overcoming them is not going to be an easy task. Why I say this is because I want to look at how Descartes actually rejects Hobbes' proposal of artificial intelligence, and why that rejection is still scientifically, philosophically relevant to us today. Uh, but how it makes our existence problematic. What I want to say is there is often a claim made that Descartes rejects Hobbes' materialism because Descartes is Catholic and that his motivation is religious. And then there is the innuendo that Descartes is actually operating, sorry for this pun, in bad faith, he's merely trying to preserve his religious beliefs. I, I think this completely misrepresents and is a disservice to Descartes' intellectual integrity. Descartes does not respond to Hobbes out of his religious faith. Descartes responds to Hobbes out of the fundamental machinery and central claims of the scientific revolution. And I want to take a look at that because I want to show you how problematic our worldview is becoming and has become. So Hobbes proposes basically right, this idea of artificial intelligence. Descartes says that that's wrong. And he has a series of arguments against Hobbes that are very telling. And what Descartes basically does is argue about the central claims that are being made by the scientific revolution. The central claims that are being made are claims that matter is real and reality is mathematically measured and that the meaning and value of things is not in the things themselves. So let's go through this very carefully. Okay. <clears throat> so Descartes says, well, Hobbes, if you are making an argument, if you're engaging in reasoning, as opposed to just computation, you actually care, right? You have a goal, you're held to a standard of truth. Because whatever I'm doing when I'm reasoning, I'm working towards the goal of truth, which means I'm acting on purpose. And secondly, truth depends on meaning. If I ask you, is the following claim true? True, grip, nick, nick, picky, baka, baka. Is that true? You presumably can't tell me if it's true or false because you first need to know what I just meant. Truth depends on meaning. So reasoning acts on purpose. It acts in terms of meaning. And it cares about standards or goals. It works according to a normative standard of how we ought to behave. Okay, notice this. This is at the heart of reasoning. This goes centrally 
to a lot of useless time, I would say, I'm just going to be somewhat harsh here, but a lot of useless time in the current culture wars of discussions of rationality. I actually am a scientist who scientifically studies rationality in human reasoning, and it is often surprising to me how little of the science of rationality advocates of rationality make use of. How difficult, and this is what I'm going to show you, it is to integrate notions of rationality with a scientific materialism. I'm not anti-materialistic. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm trying to show you that people who advocate a model of rationality that is ultimately Cartesian, that rationality is about behaving purely logically in an attempt to get certainty in our truths, Sam Harris, for example, comes to mind, are not paying attention to the criticisms of that model made by the very self-same Descartes. Do not advocate one side of a phenomena without paying attention to central criticisms made about it by its progenitor. Because what's Descartes saying to Hobbes? He's saying, well, look. Look what's central to reasoning. Normativity. How things ought to be. Meaning. And purpose. And Hobbes, and I'll, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to act on Descartes' behalf here. And we, I can do this, I think, in all integrity and legitimacy, because we have Hobbes' letters to Descartes and De De Descartes' response, and Descartes' response are often contemptuous. So you can almost hear Descartes saying, Hobbes, you idiot. You can't have a material reasoner. Because what is the scientific revolution saying about matter? It's saying that matter is inert. It has no purpose. Right? There is no meaning in matter. <coughs> we've, already, we've been doubting that since Occam. Occam's razor. Remember what it actually cuts? And it acts in terms of ought to be. Not how things are. No, science doesn't act in terms of how things ought to be. It acts only in describing and explaining how things actually are. It has no values. So science is teaching us that the world is purposeless. Matter is meaningless. There's no normative standard or structure in matter. It's just actually how it is, and how it actually is, is valueless. So Hobbes, matter lacks meaning, purpose, normativity. It's inert. How could you possibly get all of those things out of matter? How could you? If you're a reasoner, you care about the truth. And yet, truth depends on meaning, 
purpose, at least the pursuit of truth, and normative standards of how things ought to be. And none of those are in matter. Well, Hobbes responds and says, well, you know what it's like. What I can have is I can have little, I have like my abacus and it's automated and I have little pieces of paper on them and right, the pieces of paper are manipulated much like the letters on your computer screen and if they're manipulated in the right way, I get a meaningful sentence. The cat is on the mat. And then Descartes says, Hobbes, you're being an idiot because you're making a fundamental mistake here. First of all, you're English, I'm French, I don't have this, I have this. Physically, these are two very different things. Yet we're both thinking about the same meow meow creature. There's no meaning, there's no intrinsic meaning in these material marks. If waves on a shore happen to mark, scratch the pebbles, right, so that this word appears on the beach, would you think the ocean is talking to you? That'd be ridiculous. It's just random grooves cut in the sand by the water. It has no intrinsic meaning. These things only have meaning because they are associated with ideas in your mind and those ideas actually possess meaning. See, see, do you see what Descartes saying? He's saying, look, you have a view of matter that makes the rationality that you're holding out to be so central actually deeply, deeply problematic. See, this is what we need to pay attention to when we invoke rationality as a standard. Of course we should invoke rationality as a standard. But first of all, two things we should note. The idea that rationality is just the logical manipulation of propositions is something we should question because I've shown you already that Lee, Already, that's not historically accurate. That's a particular view that we see from Descartes. Secondly, Descartes himself rejects that because he realizes that rationality is caring about the truth on purpose according to normative standards and values, and none of that machinery can actually be found in the scientific model of matter. So, you know what is actually deeply mysterious in our culture right now, although it is invoked religiously, and I mean that, is exactly the notion of rationality itself. This is not me advocating irrationality. Not at all. I am against the advocation of it as if it is a philosophically unproblematic phenomenon that is irresponsible and seriously misleading. Okay. Called out Sam Harris. Yeah. I like that. It's actually fitting. So I, I didn't watch this. No, I, I didn't watch this point. episode today, but I did see a little bit of Sam Harris on, uh, on Lex Friedman, not actually on Lex Friedman's podcast, but you know, I think Tim Poole was covering it or something like that. And, uh, they did have a uh, conversation recently, it looks yeah, like. Yeah, and it, uh, at least what I saw was the, you know, it's not me, it's them, or it's you game being played, and it's like, yeah, well. Um, but it's it's funny how, like, th you know, people and things come up in cycles. Like, mm -hmm. you know, 
That isn't that we were planning that on doing 22 this week, but not because, you know, Sam Harris and Sam no, Harris popped yeah. up this week. And, it's ugh. just the timing of it. Yeah, because we took it's a odd. week off recently, too. Yeah. So it just landed perfectly. Sam Harris is back in the news right now. I, I saw those clips yesterday myself. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, though, but but I love Lex. I think he's I think awesome. I'm just going to watch the whole podcast, uh, the, like the mm-hmm. whole full version instead of I'm curious to see. Snippets. Yeah, it might have been Lex on Sam's podcast, perhaps. Possibly, maybe, yeah. Actually, yeah, it didn't look like Lex's uh, basement. Of, Unless of maybe dark, he went uh, to him, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if he does that very often, the relevance uh, of AI to the meaning crisis and the scientific revolution. <clears throat> yeah. If you have no soul, what makes you so special? Like really, like so. If you have no soul, what make what makes you the special you that deserves the divine light of god and all that stuff and you know okay um yeah oh no no yeah you're right because the finding the true self is a paradoxical sorry finding the yeah. true self is a paradoxical idea now hobbes has proposed that if cognition is computation then we could build mm-hmm. you know cognition we could build an ai we could build an artificial intelligence and so if this idea of ai being relevant to the scientific revolution and the meaning crisis in effect, allows Hobbes to kind of kill the idea of the soul. Um, and But they, Descartes comes back and he's like, your your AI theory is wrong. Meaning is not in the things. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's so. Yeah. If you're reasoning that you that you care, that you have a goal and a standard of truth, then you're acting on purpose. Truth depends on you're saying truth depends on meaning. Truth depends cares about standards goals and it implies how we ought to behave and it's so how can you advocate rationality as being this high standard uh for logical exposition and understanding of things when you actually have to apply meaning yeah and you can't in order it, to it's do this not necessarily something that's easily scientifically measurable because the way we measure things in science are material base as in the inert you know the soulless stuffs the purposeless stuffs measuring yeah. it so through resistance um so yeah yeah so that's if, if that's my, tough... if i can't find my true self anymore you know then the idea of the soul is no longer as easily as easy yeah. to believe in it, it's created a crazy paradox for us how how what a difficult conundrum we got ourselves into here yeah so right i guess the idea of you know not just a computational artificial intelligence but a reasoning artificial intelligence and if you know an artificial and if intelligence and cognition is only computational um then how is how is it reasoning how is the matter having values yeah and you know it doesn't have purpose if matter is an inert and has no purpose and no meaning then how can you use or how can you state that rationality is anything more than just the logical exposition of ideas? Yeah. Like, because you're caring about truth on purpose, you're co- doing so according to values, and so you're nowadays. What Verbeek is saying is that people use the idea of rationality religiously. Yeah. They're attaching all these values to things that is were, something that's inherently valueless. Is, that's supposed know? to be valueless. Yeah, if yeah, everything's inert, science and, isn't about values, and it's dangerous when science has values. Uh, yeah, and science is just the explanation of things as they are like in like actually in the word of like action what they are not the values or you know the value oriented 
you know like you don't mm-hmm. you don't say that you know i don't know uranium uh has a value well no it has a value like you can spend but it's not like a value in the sense of like on a, pur- a purpose and a it, it just is a thing it's we just can create there. a purpose yeah. for it through science and all this stuff but it's not a reasoning thing yeah yeah silence just describes how things are what they're made of not how to be it has no yeah. values built into it so rational i think i said this wrong previously rationality is not just the logical exposition of ideas it is caring about truth on purpose according to standards and values that we mm-hmm. have set forth so we are using our consciousness and our awareness here when we're using rationality you can't just say that rationality comes from inert matter this is a hard problem is what descartes is saying back to hobbes he's like no you're wrong that's not the answer i know like and i came up with this idea let me tell you why that can't be the answer to this i don't know what the exact answer is either i'm still trying to figure this out basically and he yeah so uh Verveke gave the example of the cat is on the mat so there's no meaning in the marks like there's no reason and meaning on the as far as the marks go they're just yeah. arbitrary marks because the the marks can change and still have the same meaning, like, you know, like the chat opposed to cat, mm-hmm. you know, at different freaking marks, but the meaning is supersedes the marks. Yeah. 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 You, you know, so you yeah, could have, mean- you could have something that could spit out text, but there's no meaning to the individual little marks other than. You've got to uh, attach the meaning yeah, to it yourself. Yeah. 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 Like, uh, you know, the, the ocean could, sp- and, seashells it could spell out a word yeah kind of thing looking into the clouds and seeing the bunnies um Mm -hmm. or you know like seeing the perfect leaf fall down right in front of you while you're Mm -hmm. at a pond or something like that Mm -hmm. you know science says well this thing broke loose it's it's you know interaction with gravity brought it down and then the friction against the wind made it go like this and you just happened to be sitting there observing it now when we get into quantum theory and stuff like that you know the observer does affect the experiment but we're we're talking yeah, more but just... the but the meaning that we attach to things is is the is what Descartes and Hobbes are debating over and Braveki is pointing out that science cannot help us determine the value of how to be uh, on how we ought to live yeah you know or or that's it's well the you inert know... materialistic silent science alone and viewing everything as inert and lifeless and just cause and effect it doesn't allow for intelligence to come up through it, for awareness, for consciousness to come up through it. We still haven't solved this problem. Yeah. Why is why? How is it that we are able to reason? Yeah, and science can't <laughs> can't explain what is just. Now, mind you, you can take a you know a sampling of two hundred thousand people and then have five different options for them to pick on on what they define as just. And then you could apply that to a sorting algorithm and a yada, 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 and do all these things and then come up with a chart. But that still doesn't explain, you know, what is just. Yeah, yeah. What it, or frankly, any, anything really when it comes to, you know, like uh, value orientations or even virtue. Like mm-hmm. science can't tell you what you find. No, nope, it can't. It can't because... It can inform you of like, you know, like how many people yeah participate yeah. in these yeah, virtues sure. and you can do percentages and, and yeah but then you have to look at all those numbers and find meaning because like so you are going to apply the meaning to that if you're not a statistician and you're looking at a set of numbers you're just going to see random numbers but if you're a statistician and you know 
what this set is representing, then you can pull meaning out of the arbitrary marks of these numbers. Yeah. You know, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so Descartes like you can't just be a material reasoner because if matter is inert and has no purpose, so if science is teaching us that matter is purposeless and meaningless, how can you ever get meaning out of matter? And and so this is a, a very challenging concept. So, so maybe he maybe he's arguing that like meaning and rational rationality are something that is imbued say in what we would call like the soul or the spirit or something that is the intangible portion that makes us us that makes mm -hmm. us special like and perhaps he was seeing you know it's like how dangerous it is dangerous it is to try to derive lose, values through science lose yeah. one's soul essentially yeah. Yeah. like how many stories do we have of you know mad scientists and doctors losing their soul because of their you know scientific pursuits yeah yeah because if, if there is no idea of a soul then how could you ever find your true self your uniqueness you know how could you do that if there's not just so, so now we are trapped in this paradox and we've been trapped in this paradox for hundreds of years now. So let's carry on. Let's figure out how we unravel this then. We're jumping back in, guys. And seriously misleading. Okay. Is that it? No. There's more. Descartes going to say more. In order to say that, we need to go back to Galileo. What more does Descartes say to Hobbes. What more does Descartes say to Hobbes? Hobbes says, well look, Galileo had this problem, right? And we've talked about it, but let's go over it again. Mathematics is the language of reality, ultimately a platonic idea. Right? And then you get the idea that there are two kinds of properties. There are the properties that are measurable by math. Those are the primary properties, the primary qualities, the ones that are mathematically measurable. And although the term isn't quite used this way in Descartes' time, shortly thereafter it's going to come to take on this meaning. The mathematical properties are properties that are in the object, regardless of whether or not anybody is paying attention to them, looking at them, involved with them. So if I can measure it mathematically, it's in the object. It's objective. But of course, Galileo faced the fact that many qualities of experience, and notice how this is, you know, part and parcel of this whole scientific revolution and the calling into question of experience, Galileo noted that many qualities are not mathematically describable. Be how beautiful something is. Right? How, how sweet the honey tastes. How wonderful the rose smells. And then he has an important idea here. The, these, are, these were called secondary qualities. And the idea here is and notice how this follows on Copernicus. These don't exist in the object. They only exist in my mind. They're part of that veil that my, the experience places between me and the world. They're part of the way in which my mind doesn't touch the world. These are purely subjective qualities, purely in the subject. Object, thrown against. Thrown against, object. Thrown against because matter resists me. Subjective. I can throw it under me. I can dominate it. 
Now, notice what Descartes saying. Descartes going to pick up on this, right? Uh, philosophers have a nice way of talking about these secondary qualities. They have invented this term called qualia, that's plural, the secondary qualities. And the idea here is they're purely subjective, they exist only in the mind. And that these make up an important part, and there's all kinds of debate about this, I'm not going to try and resolve that here, but somehow these qualia are central to consciousness. They're part of the fabric and or the content or, and or the nature of consciousness. Remember why I said that Descartes is emphasizing consciousness. Now here's the idea. What the scientific revolution showed, it, one of its big insights is, this is in the world, in matter, and this is not in the world, it is only in mind. And then, what you can say to Hobbes is the following. And many philosophers have said it repeatedly. Thomas Nagel comes to mind and many others, right? Matter does not possess these properties, the qualia, consciousness. Therefore, there is no way to manipulate matter to generate qualia, consciousness. That's really, really devastating. Because it brings with it the possibility that the AI, not only will the AI not have meaning, not have purpose, not have any normative values, the AI will also not have any conscious awareness of its cognition. It will not possess consciousness. Now Descartes brings in one other important aspect to this, which isn't quite as explicit, but it was very quickly derived uh, from other people around him. See, what has happened in Descartes, right, by the time of Descartes, is we've seen this slow withdrawal. Everything is withdrawing from the world into the mind. The mind is getting isolated, trapped inside of itself. And then Descartes, right, famously worries about that. He says, I want to doubt everything. Try to find something I cannot doubt. He makes what I, to my mind, other people have said this, this isn't original to me, but I think it's important. He makes a mistake about this notion of certainty. There's two notions of certainty. There's a logical notion and a psychological notion. The logical notion of certainty is something like absolute deductive validity. It's impossible for the premises to be true, impossible, and the conclusion false. That's different from psychological certainty. Psychological certainty is an inability to doubt. So you find something certain because you, you're incapable of doubting it. The problem is these are not identical by any means. Think of the radical bigot. The radical bigot. I am not, I hope, such a person. But the radical bigot cannot doubt certain things. They cannot doubt the, the superiority of the white race or some other such garbage. They're psychologically incapable of doubting it precisely because of the depth of their ignorance and bigotry. 
So they have psychological certainty, but it is certainly not logical certainty. There is no direct connection between psychological certainty and logical certainty. But what Descartes does is he thinks that if he pushes this far enough, it will somehow become identical to this. And it never does. And that's part of the problem we face. Because he realizes, to be honest, I mean, so what he does is he says, I'll doubt everything I can possibly doubt. And, and then he even doubts the math. Because he realizes that his commitment to math is still ultimately based on an aspect of psychological certainty. Because there could be some evil genius, perhaps like the Matrix, who's actually programming his brain, unbeknownst to him, to make him believe in the axioms of math. And before you say, that's ridiculous, come to realize how much modern physics has rejected the axioms of Euclidean geometry, even though they were once taken to be absolutely unquestionable. So why am I saying all of this? Because what Descartes comes to, the point where the point that he thinks he finds that connects these two together is he cannot doubt that he exists. Because in order to be subject to illusion, his mind must exist. So even the most comprehensive set of illusions guarantees to him the existence of his mind. This is the famous cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. It's not an argument. There's no argument there. I think, therefore I am. There's no, that's not a logical argument. It's not a logical argument. It's a statement that of where psychological certainty becomes indistinguishable from logical certainty because the idea is, in order to be suffering from an illusion, I must exist. Notice what's happening. We used to have the mind in touch with the world. Then the mind is at least in touch with the math, and now all we have left is this. All that the mind actually touches is itself. That's what consciousness is. And notice how weird consciousness is like that. When I tell you, how do you know, if I ask you, how do you know the cup's there, you'll say, well, I see it, I interact with it. If I ask you, how do you know you're conscious, you just say, I know I'm conscious by being conscious. What does this mean with Hobbes? Well, Descartes saying that aspect, that's the touchstone of reality. The mind touching itself, Hobbes, is nothing that matter has. Matter doesn't have, because what the scientific revolution did was take all of that contact out of the world. And it took it, it I'm, I, I'm even willing to say it's not even in the math. It's just here. So th these are devastating problems. I would put it this way. If you're an advocate, and you should pay very serious attention to artificial intelligence, because I'm trying to show you not only is it going to change the world socioeconomically, politically, culturally, I'm trying to show you it's going to change your understanding of who and what you are, and it is going to interact with the meaning crisis in profound ways. Right? But if you're interested in this, and if you are doing something, work on it, and some of the scientific theoretical work I do is an attempt to contribute towards the development of AI, right? you need to pay attention to a distinction. 
a distinction that was made famous by John Searle between weak and strong AI. I don't like those terms because weak AI implies something defective because we never use the word weak as a compliment. Why do I say that? Because weak AI is the project of just making machines that can do things for us that typically intelligent animals or human beings could do. Your laptop computer is weak AI. And there is, there is nothing weak about this in a social or value sense. It is a legitimate and real pursuit that computer revolution has transformed the world. Right? There is nothing deficient or defective of people who want to make weak AI. You depend on weak AI. We carry around these Star Trek computers in our phone, and we go to automatic banking machines. All of this has profoundly altered our lives. Okay? So when I use this word, I am not using it in a pejorative sense. Perhaps Searle was, I don't know, but I'm not. But here's what is of value in Searle's distinction between weak and strong AI. Weak AI does not really advance our scientific understanding in the following way. And this is the way that matters. This is how you would succeed at strong AI. And when I say it, right, it should, make, it should show you how difficult strong AI is. A lot of people now talk, use this term, artificial general intelligence, to talk about strong AI. What is strong AI? Strong AI is to make a computer that not does just some intelligent things or models what it's like, but is actually an instance of mind. It's to succeed in Hobbes's project. It is to make a mind. But, that, but to succeed in Hobbes's project requires you do the following. If I'm actually making a material mind, how do I know I've really succeeded? If, when I make this, I can give an answer. If I can give an explanation of how Descartes is wrong. If I can answer all of Descartes' objections in an explanatory fashion. Not just yelling at him, Descartes, silly, 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 but I build a machine and then I can say, look, Given how the machine is built and operate, here is my scientific explanation for how you can get purpose, meaning, normativity, consciousness, and that contact with realness that Descartes talked about. That's strong AI, and that's a lot harder. That's why people who are invested in that project are a lot more cautious about predicting when we will have AGI. The fact that computational machines are going to change our society in the next 10 to 20 years is undeniable. You're just some sort of intellectual Luddite if you try to resist that. But the idea that that immediately translates into a profound understanding of the nature of the mind is a second question. And people, the people I respect, the people I think are doing the best work in strong AI, people pursuing AGI, are a lot more cautious about whether or not we're going to be able to answer Descartes and show in a deeply explanatory, evidence-based way how Hobbes is right. So,
You always know there's going to be a good stopping point when he does the pause end. So, <laughs> DJ does a good job of catching these. Yeah, so times for break. What I do is I I'm actually listening to it as well, and I've got it as synced up as best I can, and I read the um, the transcription, the auto transcription, yeah. and so I can look ahead a little bit and see where I'd guess the made a, sh- a shift would be. And also, as I've I've become accustomed to his speech patterns, much like you'd become accustomed to somebody you play music with mm, and yep. their patterns, so you can kind of tell, tell when, when they're rapping up. into yeah. something else or when it's just a pause to catch the breath before continuing on or mm-hmm. you know little mm-hmm. things like that. Um, we can do that because we have awareness. AI is yeah. going to have a lot of trouble doing that. AGI would have to be able to well, do that. Well, I, 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 I would say you could probably make a facsimile of that with just massive data gathering. Like, you know, like. It could seem it, but will it actually have an experience of quality and. Well, can it have a relation? Like can a it have a relationship with you and then start to understand you through a relationship with you? Like, as mm-hmm. in it seeing itself as a thinking rational thing and seeing you as a thinking rational thing, putting itself in your shoes and going through. What we went through yeah. in the upper paleolithic That would be an instance in of mind if it could do yeah. that. To, to be able to actually be aware of itself and other people's mm-hmm. sense of meaning. like That's not just computing it, but actually aware of it. Yeah. That would be a real instance of mind. That would be AGI. So he, he gives us this description of uh, weak AI versus strong AI, yeah. uh, uh, which Searle, a scientist named Searle, came up with. And he, he expresses to us why he thinks that the terminology doesn't work very yeah. well because weak AI is talking about some very strong stuff right now. Like and, and what I, we have in our pockets and we'll, is weak we'll, AI. We'll get back to that real quick. Yeah. So um, Hobbes yeah, we'll it, invoked that. Galileo and Galileo is mm-hmm. saying math is the language of reality. reality. And there's two kinds. So there's primary, mm-hmm. um, uh, the primary qualities, which is, you know, it's like the table has as much mass as the table is going to have, whether you're there or not. Yes. Um, the star out in space that you're not looking at is going to continue to be a star and have its yes. qualities. Those are the it's objectives. qualities are there. They can objectively be measured because yep. they're in the object. Yes, itself. Yes. And then the secondary, which we're calling qualia, is the stuff that's in the mind. That mm-hmm. is it's the subjective qualities, it, which are notoriously unmeasurable. Like yeah. how beautiful is something? How yeah. Well, how wonderful is life? How how sweet, and we can tell. How nice is the beach? <laughs> we can tell how we can gauge how much sweetness, but then comparatively, like what's sweet to you, what's sweet to me, right? Same yeah, thing with temperature. Yeah. There is really no such thing as hot or cold. It's just preference. How hot or cold is it to you? Yeah, at yeah. That, or this moment. If you're trying yeah. to make a chemical reaction, how much heat does it need? So it's like, oh, this is a little too hot for this chemical reaction, or a little too cool. But really, it's all just heat. So you start at zero, mm-hmm. and then you work your way up. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Learn yeah, that yeah. in HVAC. We're the ones that apply hood. the meaning to it. We are the subjects that apply subjective meaning. So to Descartes' uh, argument was matter does not possess the qualia. Therefore, there is no way for matter to manipulate the consciousness, mm-hmm. the, the qualia, the mind. Yeah. So you could... He's arguing that to, since to, the yeah, material the doesn't actually have mind, mm-hmm. you know, this the the idea that materials had mind is a much older concept that we've already gotten rid of at this point. Yep. At this point, so okay, it, this has no mind; it's just a stuff. If it has no mind, then you can not create one out of stuff that has no mind. And you know, we're realizing more. It's like actually, you know, that's probably not the case. And are we not just material stuffs? Yeah, as well. So how did it happen in us? What yeah. is the soul? So there's this these two kinds of certainty 
Got to um, bring God back into the game again. Oh, yeah. So the <laughs> slow withdrawal into the mind um, worries Descartes. Oh, geez. Yeah. And that gives him doubt. Cause there, so there's the two types of certainty, right? You've got the certainty that is your measurable certainty, right? You know, like I, I'm, I'm certain that this weighs one pound, five ounces, give or take, plus or minus how many, whatever your, um, you know, whatever your tolerances are. Mm-hmm. And then there's the psychological certainty, mm-hmm. which is the inability to doubt. So the logical certainty is measurable. Well, it's not the inability to doubt. It's we don't doubt this because we can measure it. So it's undoubtable. There's the other end, which, you know, bigotry, whether it's bigotry of, well, I could classify bigotry as, you know, being shown evidence contrary and still believing the same thing. Any kind of psychological certainty. um, And and radical bigotry is a great example. And and you see, I mean, I'm seeing this happen a lot. Yeah, sure. People that think they're speaking against bigotry that are using bigotry. (laughs) Well, that that refuse to see the the whole of their own argument, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I guess it's not seeing the rod within one's own eye. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's 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 trying to fight fire with fire mentality. You were mean, so we're going to be mean back now kind of way of solving a problem or i i can't be wrong because Actually, people I'm in the past gonna... were mean and you look like those uh, people who are going to be mean to you kind of thing that's definitely uh, i can't be wrong because if i'm wrong then i'm not certain and then well i have the self-doubt and the worries and i'd just rather not do that i'd rather be right yeah, i'm just gonna stick to yeah. this i'm not gonna question myself because then i'd have to change my worldview well, yeah and you and can a have lot of people aren't used to that they're used to having a very dense firm worldview you sure. know, this is the way I am. This is what I rely on. Some people are more amorphous. They're willing to upgrade and change their well, ideas. You can even go. have scientific bigotry as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. When we got it. Um, where is, you know, like the, you know, quantum physics is not a perfect field, but it's it's starting to actually really look like it's no, it's 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 the way we it's the way we go to get the unified theory of the universe. But there was like at the at the time this came up, everybody was like, oh, you're looking at this quantum. No, you're nuts. Like we've already figured all this out. We figured out how to split the atom and all this stuff. You get no, no, I'm not. And science has always done. Like scientists have always kind of done this. As, as new science comes up, the healthy process of peer reviewing and te- tearing down the flaws within the argument mm-hmm. becomes this zealotry of no, this is the orthodox. This is the way it is. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like, yeah. and even philosophy Philosoph- built whole careers around this. Man, you want me to go against all these books and papers I just published. Yeah. Well, and also my life on this, it it works perfectly fine. Why change it? (laughs) You know, um, we were talking about this before the podcast too. people that are very intellectual that are used to relying on their intellect to solve mm -hmm. problems effectively can become a little bit too trusting in their own ability to tell if things are true or not, or right or wrong, just like right off. And, and then they'll refuse to investigate further. If it's something that perhaps the tribe that they see themselves as belonging to believes the group mm-hmm. that they identify with believes this. So they're just, and they also identify their group as being more intelligent than the other groups around them. And they're a part of the group. Mm-hmm. And you know, they, 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 sometimes people just automatically believe things because a lot of people say it's true or authority of knowledge says it's true. And let's bring up that old Buddhist uh, reminder. Buddha told us, don't believe anything is true just because many people say it. Just because your parents or elders or authorities say it's true, your religious leaders say it's true, don't believe anything even if I say it's true as Buddha until you have looked at it for yourself thoroughly and recognized it as good and true for one and all. Then you can accept it and come up to it. Yeah. So um, Descartes believed that, you know, logical certainty and psychological certainty could be 
merged for lack of a better a better word mm-hmm. um as in you could stay away from being say the psychological certain bigot by using you know your measurable logical certainty to be like okay well you know this is actually real we can measure it because what do you do with things that your intellect and your reasoning can't measure yeah like what is beautiful and all these things when you when your intellect is found lacking Mm -hmm. when you can't like um like a feeling like Mm -hmm. a feeling that like even if you have all the words for all the feelings a feeling that steps outside of that and your intellect can't it's that you know like that oh wow feeling when you you know go into a psychedelic experience but it's not just oh wow it's traditional oh wow there's there's something to oh wow yeah so like there's different kinds of oh wow or how how do you accurately describe a series of flavors that come together to make another flavor and i can tell you (laughs) i've hung out with some wine snobs and they'll spend a lot of time coming up with all these things but they still can't define certain you know certain aspects that give certain things certain qualities it's like no i just like say like when you're making a dish oh i I, I did it just the way it was oh it must be love love is what made those cookies taste Mm -hmm, better mm -hmm. okay okay Mm -hmm. and you know so yeah but man that you know that's that's but you you can't tell when something's made with a high level of care so that's why people say that you know i love that i love that yeah, so Descartes is questioning, you know, like even getting to the point where it's like, well, am I just believing math is right because there's, you know, something telling me that math is the right way, and am I am I being a math bigot, essentially, you know? Yes, yeah. Des- Descartes is worried that he's going to have to doubt everything now until he can find something that he can't doubt, well, and he yeah, he realizes his existence, and then so he even tries doubting math. Yeah. Like, but with the idea that okay, so maybe there's some evil genius that's programming me. This is like, a like, yeah. There's like a helicopter flying over right now. We got a military. Yeah, we got a military base. There it goes. You guys might be able to see that in the background. I don't know if you can or not. Yeah, there it goes. Yeah, check that out. Woo! Hootie hoo! That's fine. Flying very low and very slow. I wonder what Pushing just happened geopolitically, because whenever there's <laughs> geopolitical strife, I see a lot of aircrafts doing funny oh things, because the, the, the Potomac is a corridor for many air-accessible bases and things, and lots of military. Oh, let's hope everything's okay. Yeah. Okay, so we were talking about how, yeah, he, he's going to have to find something that he couldn't doubt, and he, and he even gets to the point where he doubts math, and he plays with the idea that a lot of people play with right now, that reality is a simulation, for instance. Yeah. So he uses the simulation idea. He's like, well, maybe an evil genius is programming me to believe that math works. And so he can't, so he can even doubt math, but he can't doubt that he exists. Because even if reality is an illusion, I'm still experiencing it. I'm still aware. Mm -hmm. I am still having experience. So the one thing that we know for sure is that we are here, that we exist. That is the one thing we can be certain about. So he did find it. And, uh, you know, to be able to suffer from illusion, one must exist. So from mind being in touch with the world, then, we, as, for humans, yeah. we went from mind being interrelated with the world yeah. to mind the, just kind of being in touch with the world and separate from it. And then no math is what explains reality yeah. and the underlying yeah. matter that makes everything up. No, actually, mind is what gives it all meaning. Yeah. So we, we keep further separating ourselves from the reality that we are swimming in. Yeah. So, yeah, going from a mind world relationship to a mind math relationship and then just a mind mind relationship yeah, 
No wonder we became more narcissistic. And, well, and, all, and so, you know, matter has no mind. That's, right. that's, that's the, that's the, that's Descartes argument. Mm-hmm. Matter has no mind. And, you know, like, and that would be, you know, like, you know, a thousand, so, a thousand so more years before Descartes, people would have laughed at him like, what are you talking about? Everything has Well, that's spirit, why people this, thought that you know, he was still this, trying to keep his belief in Catholicism yeah, alive. Yeah. He was trying, he's still thinking from a Catholic perspective. Now, maybe he's even beyond Catholicism here. He is thinking in some kind of uh, theosophical manner, though. He's thinking in a metaphysical manner here, I think, at this point. He bumps into something that's metaphysical, let's say. He didn't want to. He's trying to use reason and rationality, but he realizes, oh, my gosh, my rationality is based off of my own perception and subjective opinion and ideas. So He didn't completely fall into the trap that Luther, I think, fell into. No, which, he just gets which, stuck which, and open. Which was the arbitrary, like, humans are nothing thing, because he was a Catholic. <laughs> yeah. He does really believe there's something that imbues humans that, with the divine spark of the Almighty. The, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it could be him arguing for a soul, or it could just be him th- bumping up against that, well, crap, I guess we have to have a soul again. What do I do now? You know. Well, and also it's like, well, we must have a soul, because if we don't have a soul the consequences of that and living in a world like that are unbearable really particularly from the mindset of somebody who is a catholic at this time dealing with a very Mm. secular protestant revolution happening at the same time which i'm sure he shares a lot of same ideas and thinking styles as the protestants being a math you know a mathematically based scientifically based Mm -hmm. person Mm -hmm. um but still having that like there's something divine in me that's in you that is you know i I would say a reflection of the light that shines through us all opposed to you know we're just these dark souls and maybe you know god will come down with this flashlight and you got to just make sure you do the right right things to you know I, i don't know stand out or show that you've been hit with the flashlight or you know okay, the light's on you, so you got to be good to be worth it being on you, even though you're not worth it. And that Yeah, you can't even there, do anything. Oh, man, because I God, never realized God's how, grace is arbitrary. Yeah, you yeah. can't do anything yeah. that, that, that is going to make it more likely for him to give you grace. So, but yeah. we do notice that people that are working hard seem to be doing well. So let's just work hard and do well. Yeah. And then, you know, even though that's not making us more likely to have grace, it seems like... That's what's causing it. So we're going to do that anyway, and we're going to identify that we have grace. Yeah. It's, it, it, there's a disconnect that's happening at this point. There's yeah. definitely a disconnect in our mind, and we're using a little bit of double think or something here. There's a little cognitive dissonance going on. So now we're, we're at the point of uh, weak AI versus strong AI. Yeah. And I'll, I'll describe weak AI real quick. Um, it's like at the level of an animal or human basic tasks. So, you know, your, your computer. Yeah, like an advanced calculator that does things, or your computer that could do things for you, or, or like you know, Chat the, GPT the, is literally yeah, just computation. Yeah, yeah, or like you know, the YouTube algorithm that decides what to show you according mm-hmm. to your whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you could do it yourself. Like it's just with very enough fast time, computation. It just, yeah, it's just a lot of information. So it's not crunched. it's not necessarily weak. Yeah, but it has no preferences, it has no values, it has no opinions, it has no self-awareness, it but has it, no quality. And it does not advance our scientific understanding of the unscientifically understandable. That, it's not coming uh, up with any new ideas on its own through, the through an instance of, of mind. 
Yeah. yeah. It does not scientifically advance the understanding of qualia. No, it cannot do that. Um, it can, definitely cannot do that. Whereas the strong AI or the... Um, what we would call the, AGI yeah. or true AI, yeah. you know, it's actually Just artificial aware general yeah. intelligence. And by general intelligence, it's... We mean like our intelligence. Yeah, like... In that it's it self-referential. Can, and it can generate, you know, it can genera- generate and generalize things. And yeah. um, so creating an instant of That's the mind... So how do you know that you've succeeded in making it? Well, it'd be able to explain how Descartes is wrong about yes. a inert matter having a mind or creating a mind out of inert matter. Yeah. And, and it would have its own purpose and meaning to itself. Now, how can we tell that when that happens? Because it's going to be able to imitate that before it actually becomes self-aware and true AGI, if AI ever becomes true AGI. It will be able to imitate it beforehand. Even if it can't ever become true AGI, it's going to seem like true AGI. And that's going to be a really confusing ethical quandary for us. I think we'll, I think we'll have to look for confusion and an emotional response to its own confusion. You know, because we can see machines get confused. They go, er, error screen, blue now, screen of but death. If, but if a corporation has programmed it with a value set that it needs to meet and you know it, it one of the things that it does is it acts subjectively in ways like it acts confused about something then it gets emotional you know like they're trying to program a good ai home robot or something like that it, how do you know you know what happens then well, it's going to be able to imitate it before it does it how do you know that i'm not just an M- mpc to further your personal Oh, simulation God. that is know? the next freaking <laughs> crazy idea D- descartes comes into where yeah. is about to talk about that here like he descartes really yeah, gets no. tripped up man well dude we, we, we the, these these are the us, roots man. of our modern day like um i forget the the guy's name who wrote <laughs> the book um uh what was it um count zero was the second or third one what was it uh neuromancer oh oh yeah you know th- these these are the core questions uh, in neuromancer so like there's a guy at neuromancer his name's dixie and um they don't know whether he's like a a web jockey or whatever they call him like somebody who you know jacks into the web and you know does this thing with his brain who what they call flatlined he died in there like he's killed by a vicious what the uh ice which is a ai security program that keeps you out it's like an antivirus Hmm. but he's this kind of country guy and nobody has ever met him in real life he's just kind of like always been there like the hacker community knows of him but nobody knows whether he's a a hacker who got flatlined and his brain got his mind got stuck in there or if he's just a ai manifestation because he doesn't even know Hmm. You know, he like they asked him, he's like, oh, you know, like wow. everything's a little bit fuzzy. All I really remember is just, you know, being in here. But that's also a symptom of like flatlining and getting stuck in the system. William very, Gibson. William Gibson. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, in Count Zero, there's these godlike AI that manifest um, that take their that create their personage after like uh, Rastafarian gods. And then there's an AI that's just isolated in a space station with nothing else but just a room filled with random stuff. And all of it does is build cubes that are exactly the same size, but each one is completely different than the other one. But they're exactly the same size. i got to read this one. I started reading the first book. Gibson had an imagination because that, that Rastafarian spirit 
idea mm-hmm. that that's in a lot of games and stories that came after him. Uh, really, he, sure. he is the godfather of cyberpunk. Yeah, like yeah, uh, big time. He he wrote these books when you know the, the, the idea right? of yeah it, it the interwebs your your brain being able to be put in the interweb was brand spanking new. Yeah, you know like and you know like having interfaces that you put things in 1984 1984 yeah so there we go yeah like the technology we had there was like vector based you know Mm -hmm. like you know pew pew pews and stuff like that and very basic internet capability between you know like office computers yes you know we didn't have this massive you know and he was thinking well if you had a an internet a an interlocked system of of um what would you call it you know um nodular information like we have of the internet there would be these you've heard the term ghosts but basically these ghosts in the machines that would build up and build up out of all the information and calculation and internet and create ais within the intangible space of the internet so this is very like this was very early like and now we're starting to see that you know things do start to go a little bit funny when you like connect something to everything and then reconnect it back to everything else i'm trying to get it to show the book but i'm in a different window Mm. no worries but yeah what's his name william gibson william gibson neuromancer it's a great book it's not a super long one and it's not like yeah look it up guys it's not super tech like tech heavy either like there is a little bit of lingo you have to learn but the way he writes it you pick up the lingo like as you go uh pretty quick Right. Uh, but there it's re- really awesome in the as far as um you know get, if you want to get into the what would you call it the the, the ethics and, and, and well not even just the ethics but like what makes what makes the human mind so special and what makes a mind what makes an intelligence what you know like what are we but asking it within a cyberpunk mystopia i won't say completely dystopia because it it like functions you Mm. know it's not dystopic like Mm. there are some dystopic kind of like concepts within it you know Mm -hmm. mass poverty and you know super elite rich people just putting fake skin on themselves and living for a lot longer and you know you can't tell really tell the age of people because everybody modifies themselves and all that stuff and and then there's a space station of just Rastafari guys that smoke a whole bunch of pot and talk about the nature of the universe and commune with the... This looks so good. I started listening to the audiobook a while back, yeah, and I've never so actually finished it. So there's three books, I believe, okay. and I read Neuromancer and Count Zero, but I know I'm missing one. Ah, um, let's see if we can find the rest of them adaptations. But yeah, you know, if you're interested in the AI t- type stuff and you like cyberpunk, the whole genre of cyberpunk, I would say that this guy's like, other than like, um, what's his name, uh, Asimov and stuff like that, uh, this guy's like the granddaddy of, of cyberpunk um, as a genre. The what? It's Neuromancer. First set of novels composed of Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive. Mona Lisa Overdrive is the third one. That's the one I haven't haven't gotten to yet. Interesting. Yeah, wonderful books. Um, Very cool. Yeah, and, I'm looking into and r- right on with what you know. Descartes is battling as well. 
Sorry, I'm cutting. Oh, it's, it's definitely yeah. If you if you got it, it's definitely worth doing. And you could probably you know you could probably find it you know somewhere somebody temporarily pirating it and putting it up on a video or even a PDF of it. I think I found uh, the audiobook on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube yeah. when I when I did. If you if you're not down with the pirating, there's places where you can buy it. But you know, I I I like I like if I'm gonna ha- if I'm gonna buy something, I'm gonna get the physical copy and have it be able to stick it in a shelf. You know, I like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll support that way. Yeah. But um, well, there we go. Yeah. So cool. these questions of a general intelligence, a artificial general intelligence, making a mind and a spirit out of the inert material, mm-hmm. out of a machine, and and where does that leave us? Particularly when this intelligence will become much more than us, and yeah. now we've created something out of the matter that's that. beyond us, and now we question yeah. like we're facing what are that. We? even if the things don't become AGI, right? Yeah, we're facing that. Yeah. I know a lot of people who like they they interacted with Chat GPT once and were like, no, I'm not, no, no. This. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit uh, shocking. I- even people How- who who aren't religious are like, no, this this is the devil. <laughs> like, I don't know what this is. I'm not getting involved. It's like, yeah, no, well, no, yeah. You know. I mean, I could write a, I could have it write a story for me, and I tested that out. But then I could actually write a story myself, and then have it identify itself as uh, an editor with 50 years of experience, one of the leading editors in the world. You, you could basically have it situate itself in different professions. And so you give the, this idea that it's a great editor. I could have it edit. I mean, this thing does away with editors. It does away with a lot of computer programming. It, it does away with a lot of menial jobs that are going to be able to be automated now. So a lot of lawyer. We're going to have to be able to find our own worth uh, outside of just what you do anymore. You know, like a lot, because now, you know, we're going to have to, I'm a journalist while chat GPT can be as much of the journalist as a lot of, you know, these people who we're really going to have to capitalize where we can set ourselves apart from AI in ways that we, we, the ways we can be creative that AI can't yet because already the music that AI can create the voices that it can emulate, even in singing now, it's it, it can, it's I getting t- scary. I, I tell you how what, much better it's getting every month. At jam practice uh, last Sunday, this kind of came up, and we were talking, and it's like, yeah, you know, with the AI music and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but you know what the AI can't do? It can't listen to the song for you. It can't experience the playing of it for you. You know, no, I'm a musician, so it'll never replace what I do because I do it for myself. Like, you know, I. I I, I like when people enjoy the music I do, but like ultimately, my enjoyment of the music isn't because I'm cause creating albums it. and yeah, because I yeah. love the experience. You love it. Of and you love to it. share that and give people that yeah, experience, the participation of yeah. it, opposed to yeah. just the making of it or the having of it. Yeah, no, no, you um, love having amazing experiences, and then you go out and do it live, and then yeah. you try and put it out there for people yeah. so they can experience. And we it can too. have that experience together. Yeah. The AI, AI won't be able to do it do that so that's one way to like you know it's like i'm, I'm not necessarily like cons- can't experience for us it's it's going to be able to do a lot of neat stuff but it's actually also going to just make artists even more powerful well and in, like, an, in another your way brush too. just got a lot bigger and you then can, you can be like well got a lot i'm bigger. a non-ai artist and people will be like oh my yep. goodness your art is so good and yes. now being non-ai will be a, a commodity oh it'll for be impressive yeah okay so you can make that music on a computer mm-hmm. but can you actually play it can yeah. you sing it can you write it or, It'd be more impressive when people are doing it, like just with their meat bodies. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, meat body and a few tools, amplifier, guitars, drums, voice. Well, the AI can't experience for me or you or anybody else. So that that's cannot. that's the one thing that you can do 
for yourself you get to experience yeah. yeah and you know just like you know there's certain things people can do for you but nobody can have that experience for you nobody or basically nobody can take a crap for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> give me an ai that could take a crap for me or take a pee for me in the middle of the night when i don't feel like getting up and then i'll change my opinion on that but you know yeah, that's true. It, it, it can't, can't give you meaning. No, you are going to be generating the meaning within yourself, right? Well, perhaps Unless the whole you generate it within yourself because the whole universe is also meaningful. Perhaps somehow. if we create a general intelligence that it is its goal is to garner meaning and understanding and help people garner meaning and understanding, then that would be the most benevolent I could see of AI. Oh, sure, yeah. Not managing yeah. our systems, not doing anything, you know. Not, when I hear about people trying to design AI and yeah. push it in those directions, I think yeah. that's I think that's beautiful. probably that's what, you know, exciting. John Verveke, that's more of the avenue he's in. How do we make a... And mitigate the dangers as yeah, much as possible. Yeah, like People like him get involved in this work because they recognize dangers yeah. and... They want to help us capitalize. Making on what's a wise machine, not just an intelligent machine. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we need the wisdom ourselves to create these machines. Sure. If we don't have the wisdom and the ethics, we're not going to be able to instill it in these machines. That's that's why I, when I talk about this with people now, I joke around like we need a bunch of Eckhart Tolle's. Like yeah. we need a bunch of Hobbit types. We need a bunch of Bilbo Bagginses or Frodo's that can actually handle carrying the ring and are going to know what to do with it wisely and responsibly. Yeah, because that's basically what we're dealing with—something of that immense power. It's like the ring. <laughs> so we're in a we're in an interesting situation here. Yep. Yeah, just in time, just in time to become a spacefaring species. <laughs> yeah. Right, Maybe we were a spacefaring species, and we are the ones that the humans are the ones that realize like we need to get away from technology because it will destroy us. So we got rid of all of our technology and and. So we came to this planet, destroyed all our technology, went back to just living off the land and being hunter-gatherers, and then just forgot that we are the space-faring species that got away from the technology that we're creating now because it was destroying us. And we were like, nope, we're going to go be the Am basically space-faring Amish, if right. you will, that forgot about their technologies and their past. I don't know. I don't. It's possible, I don't, I don't, man. It's, you it, never know. You, we the probability know of that's pretty low, but it would make a really good story. Pretty low for me too, but yeah, a lot of people uh, definitely play with those ideas, and they make great sci-fi. Oh, uh, we we definitely do have that. some mysteries yeah. in our past that we still haven't solved. We do not know how the Egyptians made all of these pyramids. I'll and tell you what, actually, I saw a guy drilled. Um, they were able to build perfect tunnels, like just eight, eight inches wide, like through long series of blocks that were all measured perfectly, and still that shaft is in there like so as far as the getting the blocks up there and the certain structures that are in there that we're finding there's a guy who did a breakdown of actually like how you could build the pyramids and certain things are actually just ramps and then you build mm -hmm. over the ramps as you're building up on top until it goes to the top point and then it switches back around and does another ramping thing and how are you cutting that granite well the i don't think the pyramids you know, here's something they found underneath one of the underneath one of the tombs i think it was a tomb it's, it's some building, ancient Egyptian building from an early dynasty. They have collected a bunch of pots, like they look like vases, but they're actually not pottery. They're not made from clay. And they're th like a thousandth of an inch thick. And they're made of granite. And they're perfectly carved and perfectly weighted. They don't even have a flat bottom, but they sit and they stand up straight because they're so perfectly balanced. And all that we can 
say that Egyptian archaeologists can say is that well the people of that time and they had like they could make a steel ball they didn't have much steel but they would use steel balls maybe they had a hammer and they had some sand and they were just doing that but there's tens of thousands of these and it's like they're mass produced and then we have blocks in Egypt where it's like the block is cut like this and it goes up like that and they got these weird shapes and of granite blocks that we don't know how they could have made to fit so exactly together runs through the entire wall this so kind mo- of technology of did period, not exist yeah, back then. It, so there's possibility that there were previously high-level well, human like this, civilizations we, that we, were just destroyed. We no and longer we use them anymore. We no longer use stone and you know basic things to you know as our tools in building. We've become sophisticated, if you will. Yeah. Um, so we've forgotten a lot of techniques of how to manipulate stone with stone. Um, and like, you know, with proper time and effort, you can make a perfect block with nothing but a string and a stick and a round thing and enough rubbing and microfracturing. But the scale of it just makes it almost ridiculous that people would spend that much because the scale of it, it, it's Mm -hmm. hard to imagine that there were even enough people and there's enough time in the in the era for it to be accomplished it's the math doesn't quite add up necessarily well, the, we're, we're, we're looking at the way we're really the way long, we with the way we motion. engineer things not yeah. necessarily the way you would if you were we don't know what kind of tools they might have been they might have had some kind of acoustic technology that we don't know or understand as of yet that we're just now rediscovering i mean Perhaps if, you, if you want to fracture stone man if you get some guys with good timing that can read the vibration of a stone you get them all with a hammer Oh yeah, and you all get them all hitting in a line and hitting in a line and doing it properly. You can make a damn good line out of something that's really, really freaking hard. Yeah, but how do you make Tetris shapes and even more complex shapes than that? Because all these stones are Time. weird shaped, and then you make mm-hmm. a stone that perfectly fits in the center of all of them. Well, I think there's there's some megalithic stuff that is a primitive form of geopolymers. And now that's possible. Um, a lot, I've heard about yeah, that. Yeah, a lot of the really lumpy, weird ones that go together looks like it, they were just poured into bags. And, then and that's interesting. Away. So why didn't they just make them all the same size? They were like literally making like really interesting uh, puzzle piece looking Because walls. they're stronger. If you have ran- ah. random shapes and stuff like that, your structure is stronger that's than, a good answer. That's than cool. having just solid. That's um, smart. Because you know, it breaks up the force as the force moves At the through, very least, we've been up. a heck of a lot more advanced than we give ourselves credit it's, for thousands of years actually why before ja- we previously thought civilization began. Japanese palaces and castles and mm-hmm. stuff, they'll use a cobbling technique opposed to big stones because... Mm-hmm. The weight the, distribution. Well, because the cobbles will be able to move around, and instead of when you know there's earthquakes, instead of going yeah. straight through and breaking through it, oh wow, it yeah. would just vibrate everything. And you know these palaces are made up of large pieces that meet up with smaller pieces that meet up with more smaller pieces, and they all just kind of wiggle around each other. That's pretty even. ingenious. Whereas in Europe, which was a lot more uh, I geologically know how they made these stable, because uh, everything is like perfectly <laughs> perpendicular, like the top. Oh, here's one thing. The top, the opening is a perfect, like perfect within like thousandths of a percentage of a, of a millimeter or thousandths of an inch or whatever it is. Perfect circumference, like more so than humans can actually do by hand for sure. We know nobody in history has ever been able to achieve that perfect of a circular circle by hand yet. It looks like a piece of pottery, but it's a carved vase out of stone and it's so friggin' thick. It's like as thin as your hair and 
take make them perfect perfect circumference that top opening is perfectly perpendicular to the rest of the base it's perfectly balanced all the way around they're beautiful looking well, I, and I, it stands I, up straight I it's like an egg standing up by itself it's I, I, I have an idea as far as like say like boring through things or maybe cutting those kinds of shapes um you can take copper how do they, they cut the inside Oh well, that's just machining and polishing. So what you would do is you take you make a tube out but of copper. These people only had, they had copper, copper chisels. Yeah, but you don't use a chisel, so you make a tube out of the copper. Yeah, which um, you know isn't super far fetched. Um, so you make a tube or a round device, like even a flat round device. And uh, there's people who have done this. They use um, frequencies to then vibrate the tube and over here we are starting to create acoustic drilling now and it just goes and it bores through and it creates the same exact shape that we're seeing on the inside of the thing so yeah and and they see those kinds of marks and imagine there's looks like there's large machine drills used in places imagine a really a really large kazoo and the the membrane there is hooked up to a thing that's hooked up to the and then you got people who can sing properly or do something properly to go in there mm-hmm. at the right frequency that goes brrr, and sure. just bores it and you just do it for 16 hours 32 right. hours whatever and you do it and they may have, had, may, have, may have had power drills somehow they might have been producing electricity somehow the pyramids could yeah. have been like a power plant. or and even just you know mechanically just to have people you know and whatever rodent wheels and stuff you generate and you can actually generate tone through um like uh lobed so like those call sirens that like um what about the scoops taken out of granite when they find like granite quarries where we got the rock i think that's vitrification um chemical vitrification of stone okay because like granite you know we think granite's so indestructible but you can't use olive oil and lemon juice on a granite countertop and leave it there without it pitting Uh uh-huh so you could use vinegar and just keep rubbing with vinegar uh, you know, like the, like twenty years or something. It, you know, chem- mean, chemistry is... isn't as new as we think. We used no, to think but... it as mystical, but I think you know, like ancient Egypt was a heck of a lot more capable than we give them credit well, I think for. He, he, that much is for sure. Human civilization is a lot older than we than the three thousand years that we that think. we find those bases having held that they're probably they probably inherited those from someone before them that had the higher level technology because they stopped making them. The age that where where we find the vases, we also see them making pottery that's trying to imitate the vases, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's like you see a lot in Egypt of them trying to imitate stuff they used to do really well, but they lost the knowledge of how to do it somehow. Well, I think Graham Hancock's right. We're a species with amnesia. And Absolutely. Whether it was a big rock that hit us, or you know, right. huge explosion from a super volcano, or yeah, a I'm whole myriad like, of things. I'm I've, more likely to give humans credit first before saying it was ancient aliens. Yeah, I, I I have little to no um, faith in the idea of ancient aliens. Um, now, did we get some of our ideas through the use of psychedelics and designs? And interdimensional like that, sure. aliens, like on the other hand, I have yeah. a little bit interdimensional aliens. Through I, I'm an avid dreamer as well. Yeah. I've I've experienced some things so that are unquantifiable. People regularly talk about meeting entities when they are under influence of the deans so yeah well even you know dreams like me and a buddy of mine met the same entity when we were children dealing with trauma that's like the purple lady story uh sean sean uh what's his name sean moss or something what's that guy's name uh look it up on youtube the purple lady story it's hilarious and it's yeah it's two different people that independently experience the same person personality entity yeah under the under their dmt trips 
Yeah, mine wasn't a purple lady. It was a, a horrific Geiger-esque mushroom-headed, well, mushroom-shaped-headed kind of beast with long fingers. Whoa. But he saw the same thing when he was going deaf as a kid. Whoa. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. And I was dealing with my parents' divorce and just being a weird, slightly autistic kid. Hmm. You know, and hmm. dealing with my own set of problems as a child. Hmm. I think it was the misunderstanding of fear. Because fear looks out for you, too. It can. Oh, man, I forgot that I had us on this screen and I've kept us small this whole time. Oh, no. Sorry, Sorry guys. Here we are. We're big again. Uh, right before we jump back, back in. Yeah, right back before we're we gonna go. disappear. We're going to jump in to finish the last few minutes here of this episode. Just 20 more minutes, guys, and then we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for hanging with us. And make sure to like and subscribe if you're enjoying the show. And uh, if you ever watch an episode and you notice the, the intro is a little bit slow going, don't worry. Just zip past the first five minutes if you want. It gets going. And Vivek is always going to be friggin' super mind-boggling and amazing. So, yeah, we got that going for us, too. <laughs> Even if we're falling apart one day and everything's going wrong, it's always going to be a very deep, insightful lecture from Verveke and and we're going to do our very best to to talk on this in maybe a way that helps you all understand it a little bit better and that's certainly what we're trying to do is understand it as we go through it ourselves and try and figure out how we can apply this in our own lives mm-hmm. but yeah all right guys we're jumping back here we go we are still with that problem now I'm, i i work in cognitive science that we're still at that problem. We're still wrestling with this problem right now. And there are many people on both sides of this issue. I do not want to misrepresent one side. I mean, most people in the professional business think that Hobbes is ultimately right. They take seriously Descartes' challenge, if they're good scientists, and most of them are. There are many, it's a minority, but it's not a small minority, there are many of these scientists who think that Descartes might be fundamentally right. So this is still very much an open and important question. That goes to the core of us. Now you may think, some of you, perhaps also if you have a, a religious orientation, and I'm not insulting you here, I am not insulting you, because you might think, well, Hobbes tries to kill the soul, and these arguments from Descartes, they sort of preserve the notion of a soul, and that's great, because if I have a soul, then, of course, then immortality is a real possibility for me. Well, be careful. You may not want the Cartesian baby, okay, even though you're trying to throw out the materialistic bathwater. Because the problem with Descartes' solution is its existential cost. Its existential cost. Because... What Descartes was basically arguing for is that mind and matter are essentially different. They share no fundamental properties. Mind moves on purpose. It moves according to values. It works in terms of meaning and qualia. It cares about and pursues the truth. And it has this kind of contact with itself that no material thing has. Whereas matter is extended in space and time, displays force, 
transfers energy. So all the properties that mind has, matter doesn't have. And all the properties that matter has, mind doesn't have. So Descartes, of course, came to a plausible conclusion that mind and matter are two radically different kinds of things. Mind is a completely immaterial substance. Matter, of course, is a completely material substance. And you may say, yay! Here's the problem. If mind and matter share no properties, how do they causally interact? How do they causally interact? Here, I'm going to show you mind over matter. I'm thirsty. I desire water because water is good. So I'm going to move on purpose. So notice all these mental terms, desire and want, and I value the water, and I'm going to move on purpose. And here I do. I move and I get some water. That's mind making matter change. But how can it do that? Mind has no energy. It doesn't take up space. Right? It doesn't have any force. What about the reverse? Can matter ever cause mind? Here we go. Behold, I'm going to start with a completely material event, and it's going to end up in a com completely mental event. Ow. Two pieces of matter slam into each other, and the end result is pain. What's pain? Well, it's a qualia. It's a qualia about the value of your experience. How much does pain weigh? Does it even mean, make sense? Of, what color is it? What's its electromagnetic radiation? What's its chemical structure? So, look. Your experience is moment to moment. Mind and matter are intimately interacting in a bi-directional matter. Mind and matter. Intimately, continuously doing this, and yet Descartes' whole position, the way he responds to Hobbes, makes it impossible that they can interact because they share no properties in virtue of which they can interact because he used that gap to argue against Hobbes. Because it's the gap between matter, scientific matter, and mind that Descartes uses against Hobbes. But the problem is that gap undermines your whole existence. Because what does it mean? It means you are radically cut off from yourself. Your relationship between your mind and your body is a complete and utter mystery the most intimate aspects of your experience. The taste of this water is absurd because there's no way that the taste, which is a mental thing, and the water, which is a physical thing, could in any way be related to each other. But it's worse because look around you. There's another person how do you know what's going on in their mind? Do you directly see their mind? Of course not. Well, how do I know? Are they utter words? Well, no, they don't. They make sounds. And we talked about, remember, what Descartes says to Hobbes. There's nothing in the sounds that's meaningful. Their face moves, and they make gestures, and they express their emotions. So what you're saying is you get what's going on in somebody's mind because of the way their physical body moves 
and makes other physical things like air move. But if there is no connection between mind and matter, and your body is a purely material thing, and I hope you don't disagree with that, then there's no way by paying attention to body I can figure out what's going on in mind, because there's no connection between them. This is called the problem of other minds. How do I know, and Descartes seriously worried about this, how do I know that the rest of you are not just mindless automatons? Not just zombies. How do I know this? Because the only, the only mind that my mind touches, according to Descartes, is itself. Well, at least the mind is still in contact with the world with Descartes, right, John? Because the math touches the world. Aha! Be careful there. Descartes given us two different answers. He said, the math tells us what's real, and it's objective, but the mind touching itself in consciousness is ultimately the touchstone, and I use that touchstone, of reality. It's purely subjective. And so what we have are these two different standards of realness. Subjective consciousness, objective math. And so what our society, our culture has now done historically is careen back and forth between them. You get, you know, the empiricist and the positivist, right? No, science tells me what's real. And then all you say, well, how do you know it's not a dream? Oh, well, ha ha, silly, silly, silly. Nobody really pays any attention to that. And what you get are insults. You get insults and ad hominem arguments. It's like, well, no, no, answer. What, what's oh, well, you know, it's... And then we invoke rationality. And what do you mean by rationality? And how does rationality fit into this mathematically realized world when we don't have any mathematical material way of talking about purpose and truth, etc.? It's very problematic. So you swing the other way, and you come over here, and you're the romantics. I don't mean the rock group, and I don't mean like romantic love, right? We'll talk about these guys in, in, in a bit, right? So what's ultimately real is my pure subjective experience, right? But then the problem with that is, well, how is that to be in touch with the world? How is that to be in touch with other people? How is that to be in touch with reality at all? It leaves me totally disconnected. This, how would I know it's, it's not just all a dream? And so I go back and forth and back and forth. So what Descartes actually gave us wasn't a secure way of being in contact with reality. He gives us a completely unstable grammar of realness. And our culture is riven by these two demands and we swing back and forth between a subjective and an objective account of realness. As we swing back and forth between attempts to understand the relationship between mind and body and between mind and mind. <coughs> so notice what we have here. We have a loss of perspectival and participatory knowing we found, we've seen a gradual loss of contact with the world, a loss of contact with tradition and history, loss of contact with our own bodies, loss of contact with other people, other minds, 
loss of contact with reality. And then you say, well, at least Descartes gives me contact with my own mind, right? At least I have that, right? I have my little tiny Cartesian Lutheran island, and at least that's where I can make my, my last stand. Well, do you? Because you have to be really consistent, right? If you're going to be Cartesian and logical, you have to be consistent. And here's the problem. You can't invoke historical, cultural notions of the self. See, when Descartes says cogito ergo sum, and he says, and you may say, well, therefore I know that I exist. Well, what does, what's this I that exists? Is it, is it all of John Verveke? Right? Because it can't, that, first of all, it can't be anything I introspect, because a lot of my introspection is false or wrong. Right? Is it based on my memories? Well, my memory is certainly capable of making all kinds of mistakes. It always does, in fact. Well, what about my history? Well, what access do I have to my history? And how do I measure that history mathematically? My memory's certainly not trustworthy in, in, according to standards of certainty. And I don't have any mathematical way of gaining access to my past. All that you have contact with is this moment of self-awareness right now. Isolated, atomic moment. Now take that completely isolated, contentless, having no autobiography, no contact with its body, no contact with the world, no contact with other minds, and then place it inside Pascal's infinite spaces that terrify. That completely atomic, empty, self, adrift, in empty, infinite spaces of terror, and that's what you get. That's where you are. If you think through things carefully, according to the fractured, tortured tensions of our current cultural grammar. That's how you get into the meaning crisis. Now Pascal was aware of this. And like I said, he is as great a mathematical genius as Descartes. He on his own rediscovers from axioms forward, recreates all of Euclidean geometry as an as a adolescent, on his own. He's just brilliant. He's part of the scientific revolution. He invents the barometer as a way of measuring air pressure. But he has a transformative experience. We talked about those. And they convince him that what Descartes is trying to achieve, the certainty is not possible, and that the meaning crisis is powerful. Pascal makes a distinction between what he calls the spirit of geometry. You have to think of that in Cartesian terms. I would say today the spirit of math or the spirit of computation. And what he calls the spirit of finesse.
And his fear, his concern is that we have lost this. And we have come to think of all of knowing and being in terms of the spirit of geometry. And this is a theme, this Pascalian theme, as you've been seeing it running through this history. We have slowly lost procedural, no, the, the importance of procedural knowledge, knowing how to do things. We've lost perspectival knowing, knowing what it's like. And we've lost participatory knowing, knowing that is part and parcel of how we are bound up with something else, someone else, in a process of mutual transformation, reciprocal revelation. Because that's what finesse is, to do something with finesse, right? When I, if I do something with, if, I, if I'm doing a move in Tai Chi and I do it with finesse, right? It's like jazz, right? There's an element in there, right, that I can't capture in terms of mathematical propositions. It's knowing how, in terms of knowing the right timing, the right placement. When you're kissing someone else, right, you have to do it with finesse the right timing, the right placement, the sensitivity to the contact, knowing what it is like to be you, knowing what it is like to be the other person, and then get the, getting those two perspectives to have a participatory relation, to be in a relation of mutual revelation with each other. That's what's necessary to kissing someone well. And so Pascal is pointing out that what has been lost in the scientific revolution is all these other kinds of knowing and being. And these are the kinds of knowing and being that he found present in the transformative experience that he had. It was for him a religious experience, but we've seen that these transformative experiences are not necessarily religious. They're always spiritual, but they're not often, sorry, they're not always, I should, I should be careful here, they're not always things that reinforce established religious beliefs or propositions. Sometimes they challenge the beliefs that the person has had, as we've seen. Sometimes they lead to anti-religious or at least non-religious propositions. Nevertheless, Pascal is on to something, to my mind, when he argues that the loss of the spirit of finesse has left us bereft of the capacity for transformative truth, transformative knowing. And so we're now stuck where Socrates was at the beginning of the actual revolution. We have scientific knowledge. But remember, Socrates rejected it because although it was rigorous and even plausibly true, it did not afford transformation, self-transcendence into wisdom. But of course, all that self-transcendence is gone. Because now I don't believe in self-transcendence because of the Protestant Reformation. And I don't have to go through personal transformation, according to Descartes. Look at what Descartes is saying. You do not have to be transformed in order to come into contact with ultimate reality. All you have to do is use the right method, do the right computation. So all of this part of the axial revolution is being lost. That's what Pascal is putting his finger on. And he's doing it extremely well. So, 
What I want to do next is to follow up a little bit more on Descartes and take a look at Kant and the rise of the pseudo-religious ideologies and the main problem facing us in the West today. We face these undeniable, at least if we're being rational, crises, environmental, economic, socio-political, culture wars. We need deep fundamental transformation, transformations of cognition, consciousness, culture, community. But we have lost the psychotechnologies, the spirit of finesse, the traditions and the institutions for affording that. Because what you, the thing that used to do that was religion. But we've lost religion. And as I'm going to show you next time, we tried secular pseudo-religious alternatives and they drenched the world in blood. Thank you very much for your time and attention. So Descartes. Yeah, so Descartes. His sorry. his his back and forth conundrum here, as you know, all greats have, they have some conundrum, is the math is real, but the consciousness is also real and it's the touchstone of reality. And there's a seesawing between these two ideas. And it's not just, you know, Descartes that's having these issues. We're still having this issue. And yeah. we start insulting each other over which one's real or not, and you know, attacking the individual opposed to the argu- you know, opposed to the the point. You know, okay, well, the math is real, obviously. The consciousness is also real, obviously. But no, no, no. Like reality really isn't the math. You know, like because like I can test all these things and I can show you that this is real. It's like yeah, man. But like I can tell you, I've like went through this experience, man. And this is really ah, oh, you stupid hippie. Oh, you stuffy scientists, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because knowledge uh, is only propositional now. It's no longer participatory. We, we've lost our sense of what finesse is. Yeah. So the spirit of finesse is gone. Yeah, so... And the, yeah. the romantic idea is, you know, what is real is my own personal experience. And, you know, to a certain extent, yes, for you, what is real. But there is more real there than just your personal experience. Yeah, because there's other people. Well, yeah. <laughs> there's a the whole world, and, and it's actually measurable as well. So it's, there's it's the, such a paradox. Yeah, the inert material is there whether you're there or not. Um, yeah, so the mind that is immaterial and matter, which is, of course, material, are intertwined and absolutely do interact. But how? Because mind has no energy. It doesn't take up any space. It has no force. can't be weighed. And so D- Descartes, is recognizing this gap, but his mistake here now is using this gap to argue against Hobbes. And this is why today we are so uh, radically disconnected from ourselves because, you know, that, that challenge of that idea, like how do I know everyone else isn't just mindless automatons? Yeah. You know, if mind, if reality is just in my own mind, how do I know real, what reality is to you? Yeah. Well, it's, if reality is only subjective, yeah, that's that's the. How do we get along? How do we agree on anything? How do we build and do anything in this world? Then, 
if we can't agree on what the fundamental things that we're interacting with are. Because most of our mental interactions with each other and knowing what you're thinking is just coming off of what your physical body is doing, whether it's making sounds or doing its body thing, you know, working with your hands or sweating or, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. So D Descartes says math tells us what's real, but yeah. consciousness is the touchstone of reality and it's subjective. So we're basically careening, yeah. basically swinging very powerfully back and forth. Science says, what am I writing here? Sci science says it's real or not real. Um, and it's, if, if science says it real or not real, um, I can still say, well, what if it's an illusion that it feels real or that it feels or that God isn't real, say, you know? It, then you get ad hominem arguments. Yeah, yeah, I accidentally skipped. Yeah, no, that's fine. Page, yeah, but. and we basically have no scientific way to talk about meaning, truth, and purpose, or to weigh or measure it. And so, if what's real is subjective, how is that to be in touch with reality? Because now we're living in opposing with these opposing oppositional ideas of realness, and we have this loss of contact with the world, with tradition, with history, with each other, with reality. If everything mm -hmm. is just minds interpretations. So, yeah, what Descartes gave us was an un unstable account of realness. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, at this period of time, we've lost our perspective, we've lost our tradition, we've lost our, you know, for lack of a better term, schools of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, our whole sense of reality. Yeah. And so there's, but somehow you still have contact with your mind. Yeah. ineffable as that is yeah you know what you know what what is that we've so what is this i then is it yeah is it uh our the, memory yeah. you know is it our conditioning is well, it our ideas that we can look at and well, see okay i have ideas well no who's the eye that has the ideas then and who's the you, eye that has the personality traits you're giving it can you measure your memories yeah and also like the thing is is memories are oftentimes misleading you know that's why we don't take eyewitness account as gold in law because you know when things happen people's minds get a little fuzzy mm -hmm. and they, you don't mm -hmm. actually truly unless you're one of the really rare people that like have like complete total recall yeah, yeah. which is extremely freaking but rare there's even still we still have subjective memory sure. like our memory of how we feel about things that happened you sure. know so that that's it's very well, difficult to to memory to be reliable so there's something in storytelling called perspective storytelling um mm. so you'd have like you know say like a little kid like a story of a little kid and you know he you know goes over and accidentally knocks his ball into the the mean evil lady's yard and everything and has to go in there and he sees her come out and she looks like a witch and she's just evil and he's like ah, and he runs off but then he ends up like, I don't know, like having to sit next to her while they're at the doctor's office and start having a talk. And the next time he sees her, it's no longer this evil witch with this creepy backyard. Mm -hmm. But actually, like, she's she's not bad. She's just maybe a staunch old, you know, like a widow that, you know. But and now, oh, and then the relationship develops more. And in this story, you start you show it from the perspective of the character's understanding of the situation. Yeah. So if you were like say like to yes, have an innocent yes, yeah. character, they would go into the city. Everything's all glitzy and glammy, mm -hmm. and then something happens, and now everything goes dark, and your storytelling goes dark. So you put the person reading 
directly into the experience, the experience of, of and the understanding through what particular their perspective yeah. and what their biases are that create yeah. and so you know it's yeah. their biases that's a really helpful yeah. story writing technique yeah, yeah it helps you see the way that somebody ticks and even if they're wrong you might still like them or care about them too so well because you went complex. you went through it with them mm-hmm Yes, you know, and they have emotions, and yeah. you're seeing their emotions. It's, it's just an interesting, a really, really great way to tell tell a story because yes. it, it shows you that just because, or okay, uh, a better way to put it is your memory and your perspe- perception is not 100% reliable like how we'd measure things because it is so colored by your previous experiences, your understandings, you your biases, yeah. your pre-biases you know and other things like that that Mm -hmm. will manipulate how you see it sure you know like people people, current emotional state all of that people are scared of deep water look at the ocean a little differently than people that love it Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) Yeah. oh yeah yeah so yeah so so the only the only contact you have now is that now that now that's right non-biographical now that's That's the only true contact that moment the one moment um, yes, this one moment. I love how he, how he put that too. All we have is this isolated, contentless. There's no autobiography here. This moment, mm-hmm. and and when I'm d- describing this like in a guided meditation, what is your experience without any interpretations or ideas mm-hmm. or definitions laden onto it? What is the direct experience of this raw experience as it comes in through your senses? Now. Now that you got a taste of it, abide there, be there, and return there every time your thoughts come up and take you away from it. That is the actual naked moment. That is the deepest sense of I before the ideas of perception get laden over it, our frames of reality through which we see through and communicate well, come into play. And with, with some you know practice and acceptance, you can get over the terror of just being this singular instance in the infinite vast terrifying space of yes you know like <laughs> yes because according to our now tortured and fragmented and conflictor conflictory world views where we're separate from the world we do have that sense of reality just being this infinite um meaningless i had a i had a note here on that yeah yeah, limitless, meaningless, emptiness. <laughs> Lots of nisses. There's a lot of nisses there, but yeah, it's limitless, it's meaningless, and it's empty of of meaning to you know. N- now that we have this new worldview that we see through, so it's it's very. This is a very disorienting place to be for humans. Well, for I, humanity. I, I could it's s- no long. It's no wonder we're reaching back towards ancient wisdom and mindfulness. Well, and I can see how this, like you know, just the only contact you have with the universe and yourself is just this only a moment of now can lead mm-hmm. into the wrong end. It's just that, well, just, you know, be here now and be in the moment and be spontaneous because yeah. all you have is now you only live once, you know? Yeah. But why, well, why does it matter? Yeah. You know, why does that matter? It's there, there's gotta be an inward realization and an outward realization yeah. basically. And that's where that we practice Pascal, Comes in, in, yeah. you know, Pascal being the smart dude he is, he recreated Euclidean geometry as a child yeah. by himself. Yeah, we're seeing inside to see oh. how we take and to understand the nature of our minds so that we can more effectively interact and co-create with the oh. outside. So Co-create with the divine or with the one or everyone else, however you want oh. to put it. And so Pascal had a transformative experience. Um, so that I, I very much mm-hmm. do believe that's the thing that 
made him realize what was lacking yeah. you know because there's the spirit of geometry the math um it's what we're you there's the only thing we're using right now whereas the spirit of finesse which we have lost is that procedure that perspective mm -hmm. that participation that's the word knowing the procedural motive. knowing yeah the knowing that you have from actually being involved from going through from, it and from going through something and doing yes. it the perspectival knowing that you get from your unique perspective mm -hmm. the participatory knowing that you get from being in a participation with something or someone yeah. the and I, the mutual reciprocal realization that comes as a result of that and all that at the right time and place mm-hmm you and can have those under psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. with certain being, enlightenment, being in the right time states, and place, meditative experiences. In it, yeah. yeah, and that's the You could, you could, you could connect that with Kairos, like the thing, mm. the, 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 turning, the actionable yeah. turning point or Turner point huh. is, you know, that Kairos, like you know the. Mm -hmm. the the Kairos of kissing. How about that? Doing the right thing at the right time. Yes. You know, that, that, that'd be a nice little short realized time. through it, you know? Yeah. yeah. But the quote, I think I got this quote pretty much. All right. I like this one. The loss of the spirit, uh, spirit of finesse has left us bereft of the transformative truth. Yes. The process of experiential knowing that that transformative truth allows us to have experiential yeah. knowing, not just intellectual knowing. Like I can intellectually have an ex an understanding that okay, so we're trading atoms as we speak right now. Electrons are going back and forth, and I'm doing it with you and the chairs and everything around me, and everything really is just this one thing that we notice and recognize objects with our brains, so that we can navigate and we can express you know things to each other and everything. But it really it's just one giant process unfolding all these parts are interconnected and actually intertwined and interrelated and they rely upon each other for everything else to exist you yeah. know you can't have hot without cold well, it's kind of like down. it's kind of like using you know say the 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 only the math science and so the spirit of mm -hmm. is that the spirit of geometry yes exactly so uh, i can that, know how things that, are interconnected that, and shaped that would be like using you know like google street view and whatever to tour a city yeah. But then the spirit of finesse would be going through, smelling the smells, finding yourself in a little back alley cookery. Um, and flow and, with the people, yeah, too. Like, and moving through and traveling yeah. through it and, you know, yeah, getting into awake the hustle and aware. bustle. Yeah. yeah, you're in the flow. You're, yeah. you, you've, you, so when you have an, you can have an intellectual sense of oneness and we can talk about how, yeah, everything's one. Have you ever actually experienced? Experienced oneness because yeah, like the there's human a really cool being, market down down this street. Hey, yeah, you can check it out. But have you been to that market and experienced yeah. like the sounds? Yeah, and the I mean, quite literally, there is yeah. a sense of oneness that humans can experience, which is unmistakable, undeniable. It's incredibly deep and surprising and profound. You you feel it and you know it, and it makes perfect sense. Yet it's also mundane to the point it's almost mundane to where you're like, oh my gosh, it's like the great cosmic joke. You laugh to yourself about it. This is why it's so blissful. It feels so good and it's so freeing. It's just like, oh, it's it's always been this way. And I always knew this somehow, but I wasn't allowing myself to see that I knew it because I was interpreting reality through these frames of perception that I put on top of what already sees what already is. And so it's, it's, a, it's a head trip, but it's a sense of home that is so deep. And it's, it's the deepest sense of home you've ever had. And it's a sense of oneness and we're all capable of experiencing it. And we know 
that very many wisdom schools throughout history have taught this and independently have recognized this. And now Verveke has well, showed we us that we, we can show when the mind is in this state. We have little we encoded sayings. See the interconnection like, that happened. Now the whole brain turns on. Yeah. Like, don't knock it till you try it. Mm-hmm. That's saying like little mm-hmm. things that are just ingrained in us yeah. that are there. Like yeah. to help this, us with this. This higher state of consciousness, yeah. these higher states, these altered states or higher states, you can call them, that Verveke is telling us about here, they have existed throughout history. Very many different people have experienced them. They talk mm-hmm. about them the same way. And we know they exist. We're, we can measure them now. Uh, we ha- we've seen brains under high imaging scanners in the experience of oneness. And we definitely see that there's a shift in the way that the brain is working. And so that's uh, those episodes are there, too. If you guys want to go back through the series, I highly, highly recommend. So, um, uh, you yeah, get, this, this was a great episode. I'm, yeah, I'm at the end of my notes. Yeah, I am, too. Turning yeah. into pumpkin mode, and I still got to make my bed. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to crawl into it, but there's nothing on it. <laughs> <laughs> when you do your laundry late. Oh, they're going to be warm now. Mm. And then you're like ready to go to bed. I do that a lot. I'll yeah. put my like clothes or, or, you know, bedding stuff in the in the dryer. And then I'll come home to it, you know, before I leave. You know, I put it in the dryer. And then I come home and then I go up to, you know, into my apartment. And I get into my room and I'm ready to lay down. Mm. I'm like, oh, no. I can't. I've actually cheated before and put a shirt over my pillow when i didn't have a pillowcase this is what you got to do people you got to think outside the box you gotta adapt and overcome <laughs> but it's a pillow well the shirt's now a pillowcase damn <laughs> structural functional organization changed I've changed this the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the gestalt has changed <laughs> we are an adaptable species uh, we're hilarious it, isn't that a weird thing that that's even a funny thing to talk about we have pillowcases, and I use something that wasn't a pillowcase for yeah, my pillow, right. like poofy, fluffy thing that humans call a pillow that we're used to laying on that we yeah, all right. love so much nowadays. Pillows are, are a great comfort thing to have with yourself yeah, when they, you are they simulate uh, the under bo- the influence they, of a They simulate the bosom. Yeah, right. Saying. <laughs> like, <laughs> for that's real, a, though, like, you know, you're do. an infant, and it's just something oh, soft that's do. comfortable that forms to your body. Yeah. Too. and it has a familiar smell on it it's your smell oh, or your man you know, that's yeah. good stuff yeah wow all right guys on that note cuddle up with your pillows have a sweet night like and subscribe if you guys enjoy the show make sure that you uh give verveki some props and uh follows and likes as well and stay tuned for mm-hmm. next episode when we get into episode 23 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. What romanticism. Is, top left. Uh, rom- romanticism. Yeah. Right? Is I that believe it? so. Yep. Yep. Romanticism, indeed. And not in the sense of like, oh, lovey-dovey and flowers. But no. no like, but like the, the romantics and the art and the be, philosophical Being movements. in that moment, the experience, uh, your yes. experience in the moment. Valuing the experience, yeah. yeah. Because uh, romance is also a lot of like drama and sadness as well. Mm-hmm. If you look at the romantic arts and mm-hmm. like uh, you know and plays and poetry and stuff, it's not all just happy feelings, right? You know? Right. Yeah. Very, very true. Yeah. All right, fam. We love you guys. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. Talk to you soon. Meow. Yeah.